For me, it began in 1992 with an ending. I was five years old and happened upon a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. From that moment forward, the Man of Steel has been my favorite character. And now on this podcast, I'm exploring my fandom and examining the creative visions that have shaped the last son of Krypton across media for over 80 years. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me for this episode is uh, one of my buddies from our old comic shop, Alternate Realities, Mike San Gregorio. Thank you for having me. Oh man, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy to do this. So last episode, I had uh, my buddy Scott on and we broke down the first half of the Jeff Loeb, Joe Kelly run on the Superman titles from the early 2000s. And now, uh, in this episode, we are going to cover the second half of that era. And the major storylines that we're going to hit on in this episode are, of course, President Lex, Return to Krypton, uh, and the big one, Our World's at War. So uh, we got a lot to cover. It should be a fun episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to, before we like really get specific and, and really start uh, you know, going through the run uh, closely, I wanted to just kind of ask the, the big picture global question, uh, actually two questions. First, I was curious, when um, did you originally experience this run? Like, did you read it as it was coming out or did you come to it later? And then uh, what was the overall reread experience like for this podcast? Like, did, did the reread uh, hold up? Like, did the run live up to what you remembered? Was it better, worse? Very curious. Uh, I picked up this run when it was coming out back in 2000, 2001, uh, mostly because of the Ed McGinnis art. Uh, I've always found his stuff to be very like Eastern influenced uh, from manga, from video games, things like that, uh, which I've always been a big fan of. So when I saw his take on Superman, uh, I started picking up the the issues from there. And then uh, things, things uh, kind of escalated when Joe Kelly took over one of the sister titles. Um, as far as rereading it now, I was surprised by how much of it felt like a 9-11 story, even though it took place before 9-11. I kept having to look at uh, both ship dates and uh, print dates, which in most cases are a couple months apart, just to make sure I wasn't missing something. Um, a lot of the other stuff is very slow, I guess would be one way of saying it. Um, there was a lot more content that I remember, but a lot less actually happened. I don't know if I'm describing that correctly, but I think it's kind of the shift between, you know, back then we didn't buy these things in trade as often as we bought every issue and every issue had a story. And now I'm used to reading it in six and 12 issue clips and it's like, oh, great, great. We're going to have acts one, two, and three. This was kind of like, oh no, this is a true serial. This is going to keep going. So it, um, it took a little longer than I was expecting, but it was good. I, I'm glad I reread it. It was a nice, uh, a nice, nice to reminisce about, this stuff from so far away, which is nonetheless still very, uh, oddly enough, um, very relative to today. Yeah. So, uh, specifically with respect to the president Lex storyline, I should, I should share with our listeners, we are recording this, uh, right before Halloween. So we are recording this before the 2020 election, but certainly, uh, you know, in rereading it and our discussion here, certainly a lot of parallels that one could draw between the president Lex storyline and what, uh, the country has has experienced over over the past few years, so much so that there were a few times as I was, and this is even not even to get political, but a few times as I was reading the President Lex storyline, it's it was almost like, did Trump read this? Was he inspired by this? Like, there's even one bit in one of the issues where they talk about 
uh, refreshing Mount Rushmore, which, you know, is something that was, was in the news uh, in the recent past. And it's like, you could almost see it, right? Like you could almost see him reading it and being like, I read this book, fantastic book, great book about a heroic billionaire with a huge building who has to fight an illegal alien from Krypton. Great book. Like you could, like you could almost see it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for me, this wasn't a surprise when it happened back in 2016, because I kept talking at the time about this storyline, this, this Lex 2000, which was all about an outsider who had up until that point been apolitical, who decided to throw his hat in the ring and who won uh, quite easily uh, and, and just kind of did his own thing. Uh, one of the things that jumps out at me about Lex and one of the reasons I think you see this storyline in other uh, mediums, such as in Smallville and, and other takes on it, is that it was just a natural evolution for the character. And I mean that by both Lex and Trump. Um, you know, when they restarted the continuity in Crisis on Infinite Earths, John Byrne has said, I think repeatedly, that one of his influences at the time was Donald Trump. Uh, the idea of a businessman who was just larger than life and controlled a lot of a city. You know, for the longest period of time, Donald Trump was just synonymous with New York. He wasn't synonymous with America or politics or any of the things he is now. So for the longest time, it was just like, you know, this guy wants to wants to be in a particular field. Well, now he wants to change fields. And with Lex, it was like, I mean, even his... I forget who wrote it, but his unofficial autobiography actually uses uh, a pastiche of one of Trump's book covers. So, I mean, these two had like narrative, uh, parallel narratives for the longest time. And, and when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, I just kept saying, well, this happened. <laughs> this has happened already and didn't end too well for that guy. So, so let's see. Yeah, no, very much so. And so, you know, again, I remember that storyline fondly and it was fun to revisit, but yeah, it was I am especially glad that we did it now because it was sort of a whole other lens to view it through. And, you know, you brought up 9-11 and it, it was interesting. This issue was actually not part of our assigned reading, but the issue of, I believe it was Adventures of Superman that came out immediately after Our Worlds at War. Um, I was just on the, the DC app going through a lot of these issues and they actually have a little warning you know, a trigger warning before that issue saying that there is imagery that, uh, and they actually said like this issue came out on September 12th, 2001. And there's imagery that's very similar to, uh, you know, the, the destruction at the world trade center. So yeah, it's very, it, you know, and again, that storyline in particular was right, right before. It's, it's so odd. And, and I don't know if it was just something in the air back then. Um, I mean, I was in high school, I, I wasn't very political before the event happened, but you know, there is, um, there is a cabinet that Lex puts together, which is built of characters, all pre-existing characters. And one of them is Sam Lane, who is uh, Lois Lane's career military father. And he has a very good line, which I, again, I had to check the date to make sure this had come out before 9-11. But he tells Lois and Clark, if you knew what was coming, you would stand behind the power of the executive branch, regardless of who was in it, because you're going to want to have done that later on. And it was this idea of like, when 9-11 happened, everyone was able to stand behind the president, President Bush at the time, and kind of say, well, now we have a common enemy. So what he did in the past or what was done to him doesn't matter. We have to fight this new foe. And it was so strange to see that playing out in this like very benign, very apolitical comic. Then this happens in real life. And suddenly it's like a rip from the headline story because you have unknown alien invaders of an Eastern influence attacking major cities, leaving like literally 
millions dead, which up until that point in Superman stories, there weren't casualty counts. Uh, and everyone had to unite behind Lex and basically say, well, what are you willing to compromise on to make sure that we all wake up tomorrow? I, I can't believe it. It wasn't planned. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, again, I asked you what your reread experience was like. I'll share a little bit of mine. And this is sort of building off of what I said uh, in the last episode. So a, a little a little similar, but um, overall, it was definitely an enjoyable, positive experience revisiting this favorite run on the Superman titles, you know, from my childhood. I will say, and I, again, this is this particular uh, something that I said last episode, but reading all four titles in sequence, there were times where it was a bit of a slog. I'm not going to lie. And, you know, going into this run, and thankfully this proved true. Like I went in most excited to revisit the Loeb issues, expecting that I would enjoy them the most. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, I, the, the Joe Kelly's action issues were, you know, were a close second. Uh, I found that Adventures in Man of Steel, and again, no disrespect to those creators, but those were probably the toughest for me to get through. And, you know, I said this in the last episode, you know, what Mark Schultz did on Man of Steel, you know, he really gave it a very uh, distinct sci-fi feel. And I respect that. And I think it's great that there was a Superman book that really leaned into it. It's just not necessarily the Superman book that I was most into, uh, you know, that sort of take on the character. Although there were a couple of things uh, that, that I did enjoy. And then Adventures of Superman, uh, you know, that book had over the course of these couple of years that we've been discussing uh, last episode and this episode, three different writers. And uh, I think, you know, it was a while before, you know, that book really kind of came into its own. And, you know, you had J.M. DeMatteis for a good bit, you know, in the issues that, um, you know, we're going to be talking about. And he really took more of a spiritual or supernatural uh, approach to the character, which, again, if you're into that, I think that's great. That wasn't necessarily what I was looking for. So those issues were a little tough. But I really, I felt like that book came alive when Joe Casey uh, took over. <laughs> and this poor guy, I mean, I hate to say poor guy, but like he came on, he had to wrap up the uh, the storyline that DiMatteis was working on. Like I think he, he, co he co-wrote one and then he had to write the finale by himself. And then he went right into Return to Krypton. So like it was a while before he could actually tell his own story. And when he did, it was probably my favorite issue of adventures uh, from this period of time that we're talking about. It was 590, and it was the one where President Lex sends Superman to Bialya to retrieve a, uh, a journalist who had been taken hostage. Yes. Great issue, and I think it was one of the ones that really highlighted why President Lex, like why it was such a, you know, such an interesting storyline because it put Superman in such a complicated position. And so, um, so that was definitely a highlight. So once Joe Casey took over, uh, you know, that definitely, uh, you know, kind of kick-started my interest in the title. But prior to that, Adventures and Man of Steel were, were a little bit tough. And, and again, especially reading them in sequence, um, it, there were points where uh, it, it was a little tough, I'm not going to lie. But on a, on a positive note, I, I didn't really know, I was, I guess, a little hesitant about how I would feel about Our Worlds at War because I sort of remember it fondly as a kid, but I don't feel like it's necessarily viewed well generally by fans or critics that's always kind of the sense that i've gotten and so i was a little worried going in i'm like well maybe maybe i'm not gonna like it like i liked it as a kid but maybe i wouldn't now and i actually quite enjoyed it you know for reasons that we can we can discuss but uh, i was very pleasantly surprised that that storyline in particular uh held my interest the way it did i listened to the man of steel soundtrack as i was watching like i got really into it <laughs> you know yeah so uh so that was sort of the my overall experience i i 
I find it really funny that you said upon reread, the lobe issues were still your favorite because um, at the time I, I enjoyed the Joe Kelly run more. I, I'm a huge, huge Joe Kelly fan. Um, I, I, everything he's ever written. Uh, I like his run on justice league even more than I like it. Uh, Grant Morrison's run. Like I'm a huge, huge fan of his. I can't even tell you why he just makes me laugh. Um, and rereading his issues for this, was a delight because they they are the ones I've reread since then and uh, seeing what he was playing off of and watching the relay race of following the S shields every month and watching one book go to one book go to one book and watching him pick up the baton and really run with it for the 20 or 25 pages that he had was a delight. Uh, This is something I've got a little bit of um, experience with as a fan because at the time these books were coming out, the Spider-Man books were doing something similar. So they had a Spider, at least one Spider-Man book every month. And when they crossed over, it was a big deal, but you were getting four or five competing narratives. So, you know, there are people who are very good at this. Joe Casey is an excellent example, but Joe Kelly, I feel like really excels at this because I feel like he can uh, take any plot point you give him, find the humanity and move on. And I, I cite as the best example, action 775. I mean, we could talk for an hour just about that one issue. And actually I, I did, I, I had read 775, very recently before you and I um, talked about doing this for our book club, we had a theme that was best single issue and I chose that. I've read that comic a hundred times. Uh, I, I think it's perfect. And rereading it now in the context of everything else that was going on was, was just a delight. It was, it was so enjoyable. And what about the lobe issues? Cause I know, you know, you and I had had a discussion months and months ago when I was first putting this podcast together and I talked to you about, you know, would you want to come on and, and talk about this era? And, you know, you expressed, again, deep admiration for the Joe Kelly uh, issues. I think you were a little less hot on uh, on Loeb. Uh, so how did, the, how did the Loeb issues hold up for you? I, you know, they, they, they did hold up. I, I found something to be very interesting with the Loeb issues. Um, I, I've read everything Loeb has done. Um, so I, I, I kind of understand where his influences come from. I know he's a big fan of Elliot S. Magan, who was uh, very big in like Silver and Bronze Age DC. What, what I find most interesting about the Loeb issues is there was this sense of like nostalgia versus progress. So what I mean by that is, you know, we read Return to Krypton, where the express point of the story was, well, we're going to uh, reconcile the John Byrne, very modern, very clinical, very cold take on Krypton with the Silver Age version of it, which was kind of a, a warm, friendly super place that we never got to see much of. And uh, you got to see crypto, you got to see a lot of the old iconography, you got to see a lot of other stuff. Um, But for me, back in the day, that was a little bit off-putting because that was not my nostalgia. (laughs) I was reading this as a teenager who very much enjoyed the the burn stuff because I'm I'm a big sci-fi guy. I I thought that made more sense to me. Um, So seeing that was kind of weird, not bad. I thought it was a very good adventure story. I love any excuse to go to Candor. but for me, the lobe issues were interesting because that nostalgia was set against the desire to use a very modern setting. So what I mean by that is you have, you know, Lex pre-crisis could not have become president. It wouldn't have made any sense. It would have lasted an issue and then they would have been like, aren't you wanted for like crimes against humanity? But the, the John Byrne version, the version who made a point of keeping himself out of jail and doing everything else, that's a perfect evolution of that character. So it was very interesting to read these issues, which are like, hey, my Superman was really good. Here's what it was like. You know, he would go on to reintroduce Kara Zoel, all this old stuff. But at the same time, it's like, 
oh, we're going to use this one plot element from the new stuff and we're going to push it forward. So it was, it was really good because it was, it was how you could use old and new. He didn't necessarily throw anything out, which I liked. Yeah, for sure. And so I'm glad you enjoyed them. It, you know, Scott and I talked about this in the last episode. Uh, what we really liked about uh, the Loeb Superman run was his use of narrators uh, sort of, you know, carrying us through his, most of his issues and uh, letting us see Clark or Superman through their eyes. So, you know, Lois is his most frequent uh, narrator, but we have episodes from the perspectives of Perry and Pa and Jimmy and uh, Ray Palmer and Kyle Rayner. I mean, the, you know, the list goes on. And that to me was my favorite aspect. It's funny though, because I, I had a very similar thought with Return to Krypton. And I was trying to remember, it's exactly as you said, it was an attempt to sort of fuse, you know, the pre-crisis and the burn versions of, of Krypton. And I was trying to remember, because, I mean, as a kid, it's like, I don't even know what sort of frame of reference I would have even had for Silver Age Krypton. And as I was reading the story now, I was like, what did I think was going on? Like when I read the story, you know, the first time. I felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean yeah, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, like the literal iconography of like the, of everyone on Krypton was dressed like that and they wore capes and they wore costumes and they wore everything else. Like that was huge in the silver age where tons of phantom zone criminals would show up and Clark would time travel and he had Supergirl and he had Superboy and he had the super family and it was great. But like, yeah, when you and I were, were getting into this stuff, uh, you especially, you read way more Superman as a kid than I did. It was like, it was like, no, he's alone. He doesn't have a, uh, excuse me, he doesn't have a cousin. He doesn't have a dog. He's going to have a clone later on, but he's not going to really get along with him for a while. You know, he was, he was alone. It was very much like, you are separate. This world died. There's nothing left. There's a, there's a crystal and a, and a birthing matrix and you don't have anything else. And writers fought against that. I mean, very famously, there was a story with General Zod that John Byrne did. That's, that's a very good Superman story. But um, yeah, this, this idea that like, oh no, you know, Krypton was not only uh, warm and it was great. um, It was conflicted as well. Like one of the things I really like about Return from Krypton is I think Jeff Lowe nails General Zod. I think he's a character we've seen a hundred times Everyone knows him, you know, people who aren't fans, they don't read comics, they know General Zod, they've got three or four versions of him dancing around in their head. And I really liked seeing him on Krypton and seeing that he had a stake in its survival, but it had to be under a particular way. If anything, that seemed to inform the the version in the DCU more than anything else. Yeah, for sure. I like that take on Zod a lot. And, And like you said, yeah, I think it was a nice balance, uh, because it did show us a warmer Krypton, but it wasn't perfect, right? You did have, you know, Zod and and that whole contingent and the isolationism and the xenophobia. And, and, you know, so there was a lot of stuff going on there. Um, I I just want to just some, some quick uh, background and setup, I guess, for, uh, for our listeners. So you mentioned Joe Kelly and uh, you and I have spoken about this. Um, I'll announce now down the line, I don't know exactly when in the sequence of of episodes, but you and I are going to do a full on uh, Joe Kelly episode. So as much as, you know, know, we'll, we'll touch on uh, his, we had spoke for listeners. I wasn't just springing this on Mike, <laughs> telling him he's going to do it. We had spoken about it, but, um, you know, so we'll do a full on Joe Kelly episode, like as much as we'll, we'll talk about his issues, you know, a, a bit here. Um, but when we do that Joe Kelly episode, in addition to his action run, we also have his Superboy run. He did a year, uh, on Superboy towards the, towards the very end of that title, his JLA run, which you referenced, which he was on for a good two to three years. And uh, also a great issue of Wonder Woman, uh, where Lois Lane guest starred, and it was a nice sort of counterpoint to the 1,000 Years in Valhalla story that was early on in his in his action run. 
So we're going to do that. And then as far as what we're talking about today, so um, again, I mentioned the major storylines that we're talking about. And after our Worlds at War, Loeb stayed on the main Superman title for about another year. And we'll talk about those issues, but we'll sort of cap our discussions of action adventures and Man of Steel with our Worlds at War, which very much was the climax, I felt, uh, to this era of the Superman titles and, and really kind of closed the loop and brought a lot of things full circle, you know, dating all the way back to their first major storyline of Y2K and the B-13 virus and the upgrade uh, of Metropolis. So that's sort of our focus for this episode. And I will say, just going back to the last episode, because in, in part one uh, of this discussion of, of this period of the Superman comics, in talking about the City of Tomorrow, the, the upgrade that Metropolis got, I said that I felt like we didn't see as much of the updates to the city or as much of the technology as I remembered from a kid, as you know, from reading as a kid. And I think that was just because it was in the second, more in the second half of the run. So uh, for anyone who was listening last time and was like, what is he talking about? Like they, <laughs> they did a lot of stuff with Metropolis. <laughs> I see that now. Uh, again, I, I don't think it was such, you know, such a big force, uh, again, in the issues that we read for last time, but certainly uh, I think it got more play, you know, this time around. Um, so again, so that's sort of what, uh, you know, what we'll be covering, you know, in this episode. And we've already, we've already touched on a lot already. I guess, shall we start with, uh, with President Lex? Yeah, yeah. You know, which um, more so, I feel like, you know, obviously Return to Krypton or Our Worlds at War, like those were, you know, major crossovers. Um, I don't want to say more plot driven, but there was definitely, you know, a sequence to follow, right? Whereas with Lex, it felt a little bit more thematic and it was kind of more like happening in a lot of cases, like in the background, like he made his announcement in one issue and then like the issue went off and sort of did its own thing. But like it was, you know... Um, Again, I think approached a little bit differently than some of the other major storylines that were going on. Yeah, my my favorite thing about the President Lex story is, like you say, it exists in the background. You know, it's this major thing that we all remember. But if someone really wanted to read that story, I, it's not like I could give them a trade. It, it's bits and pieces all over the place. Um, but one thing I love about that story, love, 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 my favorite thing, I remember talking about it in 2016, and I, I constantly go back to it, is that you know, he, he wins fair. He doesn't have a scheme. He doesn't have a, uh, a plot. You know, he uses a disaster. He uses the, uh, the cataclysm and the no man's land in the Batman books. He uses a previous crossover. He fixes that city with his own wealth and his own technology. And then he, like I said before, you know, he, he has no criminal record in this version of things. He can very easily turn around and say, listen, are we going to let super people solve all of our problems? Or are we going to fix our own problems? And I mean, you know, for anyone who, who remembers the 2000 election, like not one political candidate was not liked much more than the other. So it really was a very contested field. And I, I just love the fact that um, probably my favorite issue in the low run is it's a short story in one of the art and one of the, um, it might actually be in the Lex 2000 books. It's where you see what Superman does when he finds out Lex has won. And it's him like breaking a moon, yeah. just going into the depths of space where no one can hear you scream and beating the crap out of celestial bodies. And I love that because I love that all the things this man has done to him and his loved ones and the world and the city and all this stuff, nothing has gotten him so angry as using the system he purports to support to, to further his own end game. And again, Lex doesn't do anything bad. I mean, the first bill he passes, it's like, hey, we should give more funding to the Justice League and we should do all of this stuff. Like he's rubbing it in Clark's face that you know he was yeah. able to do. 
And Clark can't accept that. And that's great for me because it's like, oh, wow, you are giving this guy an arc. Like Clark is running around saying he's going to do something. He's going to do something, but he never does anything. Right. No, well said. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And I too, I love that that little sequence from that Lex 2000 special where he's punching a moon because <laughs> it very much, you know, captures uh, the, the frustration, like a very real, very human frustration. Uh, so I thought that was great. Yeah, I mean, overall, there's a lot, there's a lot that I liked about the the President Lex storyline, uh, and and your point is 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 terrific. That yeah, he does win fair and square, and uh, yeah, because like you said, he could have very easily run on a platform of you know anti vigilantes, anti metahumans, and he doesn't. And even that bill that you're talking about, you know, to increase funding, you know, for the for the Justice League, he even goes so far as to say like I'm uh, like I'm pairing it with an education bill, so like it has to get yeah. through. Yeah, you know, so. Uh, and, you know, I guess a couple of other things. One, you know, like you said, it, it is a true arc and it, um, I think it escalates the threat of Lex in a, in a very real and natural and organic way. Yeah. And yeah. it also, you know, again, going back to this arc that, that Clark has, it's like, this is not a problem that he can punch. And I think you see this numerous instances in this run, you know, in the last episode we talked about the the marital strife that uh, that Loeb and company put Lois and Clark through. Of course, it ended up being that, you know, Lois had been replaced by the parasite. But, you know, Clark is really put through the ringer, you know, in that storyline. And he's also yeah. suffering from kryptonite poisoning. The guy's like a mess. He's falling apart, you know. And then we roll, you know, into this shortly thereafter. And it's like, yeah, another problem he can't punch. He can go punch a moon in deep space. <laughs> but, like, there's not much else, you know, that he can do. And I think it's it, those are always interesting stories, interesting positions to put him in. Now, I guess my question is, should he have done more? Should he have done anything? Because he really doesn't do anything at all other than put his trust in the American public to make the quote-unquote right decision. This is an argument that I have with friends at home very often where, um, you know, Superman's entire thing has always been, well, wait, not in the golden age. The golden age Superman would have campaigned for Gore or right. someone else. <laughs> golden age Superman was a very different character. But but post-war, you know, after they added the phrase the American way to his thing, like that's Superman. Like father figure Superman has always uh, stayed above politics. He's not Steve Rogers. He's not Tony Stark. He's not Bruce Wayne. Like He stays above this stuff because he knows, you know, like the shirt I'm wearing, he could very easily take over and he doesn't want to do that. Um, but to your point, like that's an excellent question. Should he have done more? Well, it's arguable that if he if he did, if if he came out and said you shouldn't vote for this guy, then he's using his power in a very pointed way. And I think Lex knew that he wouldn't do that, and that's why he was able to get away with it. Uh, there's this great joke that, uh, excuse me, there's a great line that the Joker has for Batman. It's basically like, why would I want to kill you? Where would I be without my straight guy? And I feel like the Lex and Clark dynamic is very, very similar. And I call them Lex and Clark because I will always think of them as the two guys in Smallville of course. sitting in his office while he swills whiskey and Clark is like, you shouldn't do that. So to me, they'll always be friends. But, uh, you know, Clark could have done something. He could have prevented this. He could have taken a stand and said, I'm Superman. You trust me. Don't vote for this man. He doesn't have your best interests in heart. But he, he put his faith in everyone and that I wouldn't say that faith got betrayed, but yeah, he got let down. He got let down in a very personal way, in a way that kryptonite or magic or the sun being eaten is never going to because it was personal, because he wasn't expecting it. And I like that. I like seeing Clark's altruism, again, not, not turned against him because I don't think anyone was, was manipulated per se. Like he did fix Gotham. He did very good things. Um, but seeing, seeing Clark 
doubt, just a little bit, is so rewarding because it feels very honest and very human. And I love that about it. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny because there's the, you know, the issue shortly before the actual election where, you know, Batman shows up at the the Kent apartment and is basically like, what are we going to do? And <laughs> Clark's like, no, I think it'll be all right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you know, very, uh, very famous last words. I, you mentioned the uh, the no man's land angle, and they did play that up a lot. You know, this whole idea that he rebuilt Gotham, and now of course he's in control of the B thirteen technology that has upgraded Metropolis. And I love that. I mean, I think it really, I think they they go hand in hand, and it helps make the case for him as president. And I love no man's land. So anytime that uh, that gets a wow. mention, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always happy about that. Um, I was just thinking, though, you know, we were saying that he he won fair and square. Mostly true, although it just popped into my head. He does, it seems, orchestrate uh, the attempt on his life, you know, when he's shot in one of the issues. Does he, though? I think I'm glad you brought that yeah. up because I thought the same thing. But I I don't think that's the case. No? I, I had to look this up a little bit. Again, I... I I know a lot about a lot of comics, but I'm a little fuzzy on, on Superman sometimes. That character apparently was introduced in, a, in the John Byrne run, and Lex had manipulated her early on, years and years and years beforehand. Um, so I think that when she tries to kill him, because I had the same thought you did. I, I had the same thought like, oh, because I think Lois says, why haven't we been able to speak with her? It's like, right. oh, well, she, he must have orchestrated this. But I, I don't think he did unless i'm missing something unless i i, I missed the line of dialogue or something but i think she just was legitimately mad for something terrible he did before the story opened and, and took it upon herself I, I i could be missing something but i had the same thought you did okay no i'll go with that and you know I, I talked about this in the premiere episode but you know one of the reasons i'm doing this podcast as much as i've been a lifelong superman fan and yes i know a lot about the character but there are huge gaps in my reading and as much as i read Burns, Man of Steel, and I read certain key issues and storylines. I have not read the entire era of, of John Byrne. And so, you know, yeah, if that's a character from that period of time, it's like, yeah, I, I it wasn't that, not something that clicked, you know, with me yeah. as I was reading this. So maybe he truly was fair and square. <laughs> um, I tell you, there's, there's one thing that really jumped out at me this time around, as opposed to back then, you know, back then we were kind of limited, like, you know, the internet was around, but I, I don't really know how much I used it for this type of stuff. Um, you know, there were certainly the other guys at the comic book store. I think at the time this stuff was coming out, I was shopping at comic book heaven and, and white plains. Um, you know, they knew everything. So I, I could ask questions of them and there was some reference guides and things like that. But, you know, now I was able to just go to the DC fan Wikipedia and find cross references and everything. It took me 30 seconds. I, I, I did it you know, in the middle of a few other things. So it's one, it's one thing to read the run where you don't necessarily know who all the characters are and are kind of trusting in the creators that they'll explain all this. Maybe they just don't get time to, I'm not faulting them as opposed to now where if a comic comes out or you're reading an old one, you can just look them up and you have all of this wealth of information that probably the original writers didn't even have. So that made it, that made it much more rewarding this time around. Yeah, for sure. Just a quick side note. Did you read your original issues or did you read uh, on the app for the reread? Oh. Uh, I read all the original issues that I owned. So absolutely the Loeb, the Kelly, all the War World stuff. I I did not have any of the Schultz or the Dematius or how, however you pronounce his name. I'm not actually sure. I, I looked it up because I, 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 I was very unsure myself. And in my head, you know, I, I think I, when I, I think I had been mispronouncing it, you know, <laughs> all along. <laughs> I looked up an interview he did because uh, I was unsure myself. But so those issues you read on the app then. Yeah, those I read on the app, and then just just one-offs like the um, 
the the nine eleven issue you mentioned, uh, the issue of adventures, things like that that I just didn't have, couldn't locate. I I, I read on the app because again, it's nice having all this stuff in one place. It's like oh well. Let, let, let me give myself a little bit more context. You know, let me see what else was going on at the time. Uh, that was especially helpful with Our Worlds at War because now you have everything in one place as opposed to back then. I mean, all crossovers are kind of cash grabs, but that one, those issues were expensive. <laughs> and I, I know back, you know, back then in high school, I was definitely on a budget. So I, I, I was always uh, trying to follow creators that I liked and characters that I liked. But now it was it was nice to say, oh, I'm going to read this one just randomly because it'll take 10 minutes. But um, no, it, was, it was nice. I enjoyed the reread. For sure. And, you know, you mentioned before talking about President Lex that, you know, unlike a hard crossover, this was sort of like bits and pieces and in the background. And you were like, you know, I don't know that you could give someone a President Lex trade. Funny enough. So uh, DC had put out a run of of trades collecting the majority of this run years and years ago. And there is a President Lex trade. But to your point, there are literally bits and pieces of certain issues, <laughs> like the issue of Adventures of Superman, where he announces his bid for the presidency. You know, it's included in the, you know, in the in the table of contents right at the very beginning. But it's just like the first two or three pages where he makes the actual announcement and that's it. So to your point, it really was sort of like here and there uh, throughout a lot of um, throughout a lot of these issues. Um, I read. I mostly read on the app uh, for convenience and also because, I mean, to be honest, the page quality on those old trades that I have is not, it's not the best. Uh, so the, the art definitely kind of popped more, you know, reading it, um, you know, reading it on the app. Um, and again, you get to read what's effectively the solicitation copy for each issue, which was kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, so going back to, to President Lex, uh, again, overall, I enjoyed the storyline. I think there was a lot that was really great and a lot that really worked, but I felt like, there was a little something missing, and I think this is debatable. And based on what you've said, I think you might take a, a counter position, and that's great. So, you know, I asked, like, you know, could Superman have done more? Should he? I would argue that he should have, and I think that that would have made the story richer because it would have made the betrayal more palpable and also more believable. And the reason I say that is, and you hit on this already, in this version, in, at this point in time, in this continuity, Lex doesn't have a criminal record. Right. And they even make a point of saying that uh, the B-13 virus like wiped wiped his his records everywhere. Right. And clean slate. Exactly. And they actually they reference this directly in the Lex 2000 special. But, uh, you know, in the 90s, there was this whole storyline where, uh, you know, Lex <laughs> Lex cloned himself. Right. And then he posed as his own son and he was ultimately caught and he was on trial for his role in the destruction of Metropolis in a like 94 storyline. And the out for Lex was they brought in another Lex clone and pinned everything on that clone. So I guess this is a long-winded way of saying that I think to the average person, you know, as much as we know Lex is bad and Clark and his allies know Lex is bad, I don't know, again, at this point in this continuity, I don't know that the average person necessarily knows or fully appreciates. And I think if you had Superman make a public statement or get more involved and then it really becomes a matter of like, well, they went with Lex over his word. I think that would have, I don't know. I think that would have, uh, you know, been a little bit stronger. I, I think, I think you're right. But I also think that there's a part of the story that we don't see. Um, that is part of what we were talking about, about there not being, it's not as if president Lex was a 12 issue story written by Jeff Loeb. And if it had, I think it would have been very different, but to your point, the way I always justify that is, Superman is two people. 
he's Superman. He's perfect and he saves everyone and he does what he can and he leads the Justice League and he's a good person. But he's also Clark Kent. And Clark Kent is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter. And this country's got a long history of, of newsmen and journalists taking down politicians. So I like to think that while Superman probably didn't go on 60 Minutes and say, this is why you shouldn't vote for Lex. And it's not just because I don't like him. Uh, it's because he blew up Paraguay or whatever happened in Rock of Age. It's like, yeah, he could have done that. But in my mind, I have to imagine that the Daily Planet had one article every single day that was like, these are the reasons you should not vote for Lex Luthor. I, I mean, we even see it in real life. I mean, how many times has President Trump attacked the New York Times? You know, newspapers and their uh, their editorial boards, they support people. Like, this was not a hyper-political story, but the way I read it, and again, I, this just may be because, you know, I'm, I'm a huge geek, but I, I thought to myself, like, Clark, Lois, you know, all their friends, they probably had columns every day saying, why would you vote for this man? Why would you vote for this man? And again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but we saw this, we're seeing it now. It's like, you can write about all the facts. You can write about everything you want. You can bring out witnesses. You can bring out evidence. People are still going to do what people want to do. And I think Lex is a great example of that because the other thing you have to remember is uh, the timeline that President Lex takes place in is not that old. You know, John Byrne was given a mandate of this is a young guy who does this. So really, if you compress the timeline, how long has Lex been around? You know, maybe people are like, okay, he did a couple of bad things and cloning is kind of weird, but <laughs> man, he fixed Gotham. He really, like, he he rebuilt all those places that Wayne guy didn't do it, the government didn't do it, that that guy didn't do it. Lex did it and he did it without wearing a mask. You know, I, I get behind that, you know? Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I want to pick this up in uh, in a second, but let's just do a quick uh, quick commercial break. Submissions are now open for the March season of the Brightside Tavern Film Festival in Jersey City, New Jersey. Visit filmfreeway.com to submit your film now. Also, be sure to listen to the podcasts hosted by the festival's organizer, CJ Cullen. You can find the official Hang On To Your Shorts podcast, as well as the Cullen On Film podcast via a shared universe network. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. And we're back. Thank you to our sponsors. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I definitely, I get what you're saying. And it's, it's interesting because I think this shows how my, you know, my tastes have changed or what I want out of a story has changed because, you know, like you said, this wasn't, President Lex wasn't, you know, a six or 12 issue story by Jeff Loeb, but it's like, boy, I wish it was. And I wish we could have spent more time with Lex on, could you imagine like if Greg Rucka did a six issue miniseries, like Lex Luthor campaign trail? It's like, and that's, that's the story that I, that I would have loved to read. You know, so it's like, yeah, you're right. The, I'm sure Lois and Clark and the planet, I'm sure they were very involved and they were running articles and investigating. And it's like, that's what I would have wanted to see more of. Uh, there was also this this great bit, you know, you mentioned Lex's cabinet and the, and the cabinet was really interesting because, yeah, you had Jefferson Pierce, Black Lightning, a secretary of education. And you mentioned Sam Lane, Cat Grant as the press secretary. So, you know, that was really cool. And his pick for VP uh, was Pete Ross, which was added this whole other whole other layer to it. And you mentioned Smallville before. And of course, you know, 
you and I are both massive Smallville fans. And I'm sure you remember, like, at the time, uh, you know, Pete left after the, the third season. But I know fans were always speculating, like, is there going to be some hint at Lex and Pete's, you know, future, uh, you know, political run together? And you don't really get much until Pete's uh, very last episode on the show. I don't know if you remember this, but I mean, again, it's, it's really barely a hint. Uh, but Lex actually rescues Pete. He had been uh, abducted, I think, because someone knew. I think it actually, ultimately, Lex was behind it. <laughs> but he ends up rescuing Pete. Uh, and the person who had taken him was trying to find out uh, about Clark's secret, because Pete knew at the time. Um, and anyway, uh, as they're leaving, you know, Pete thanks Lex. And Lex says, like, all right, you can owe me one. Like, he, he says something along those lines to kind of hint, like, okay, something's going to happen down the line. Uh, but I remember fans were always, like, looking for some sort of, uh, you know, clue as to what was going to happen. But I love the pick for VP. My favorite story in the whole thing was when uh, Clark goes to see Lana Lang and uh, he basically says to her, you know, P. Ross is your husband. We were all friends. Why didn't you tell him not to do this? And he doesn't say it, but the reader is supposed to think because this is wrong. Like Clark is saying, like, why didn't you meet my moral standards for you? And, you know, she says something about referencing a story where, uh, Lex had tortured her and there was all this backstory. It was a story I never read, but whatever. Lex Luthor did a bad thing to Lana Lang. There's a hundred comics about that. Um, and he says, you know, she says, well, I didn't tell him and you can't tell him. Well, we can't tell him. We have to keep this secret. And the reason is like Lana didn't want to give away Clark's secret. So I love the idea that someone was able to tie all this together. So Lana Lang, knowing who Superman was, Superman having never trusted Pete Ross, drove Pete Ross to continue to do the right thing. And it drove him into the arms of Lex Luthor and to see like his very good friend standing next to him thinking he's doing the right thing. Maybe he's a little naive, but it was great because it's like I was saying before it, it's such a human moment. Like no one is mind controlling him. The, this is not a shapeshifter. This is not an alien invasion. This is just, this is the results of how you choose to share both of your dual lives with uh, and who you choose to share them with. And I just, it was a gut punch. It was beautiful. There's a, there's a really funny scene uh, in one of those early Lex, Lex 2000 issues where uh, it's a lobe issue where uh, Clark is visiting the farm and they're talking about Pete uh, being the VP and, uh, and Pa and Clark are at the kitchen table and Pa's like, you know, three things you never discuss you know, at, at the dining room table, you know, politics, religion, and old girlfriends, and Ma's like, I heard that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, very much, you know, very much a, a, a debate, and I think you hit on a lot of the issues that, you know, certainly were, were going on for Clark, and seeing his, you know, childhood best friend go down what he knows to be, you know, a, a bad path. It was interesting, too, the take uh, from the rest of the DC universe on this, and you got it in a couple of instances. Aquaman, of all people, uh, actually got quite a lot of play, uh, and also was in, it wasn't just the Loeb issues as well, though primarily uh, in, in those issues. And there's that two-parter in particular where uh, Aquaman uh, abducts Lex because of um, machinery that's emitting uh, waves that's like hurting the fish. And But Lex is actually able to spin it and he actually curries favor, no pun intended, with, uh, with Arthur, uh, which was a very interesting take. And Arthur's takeaway is sort of like, no, like he's willing to work with Atlantis and respect Atlantis in a way that we've not seen from previous administrations. So it was a very interesting uh, dynamic there. Yeah, you you actually just hit on something that, that's a very good point. I don't think I had realized it up until now. You know, most superhero comics, you would have the, the president or whomever the elected official was calling the superheroes and being like, hey, 
fix this. I was not elected to deal with this. But one of the interesting things with Lex is that super people don't put him off. You know, he's dealt with all manner of people. So when you actually vote for him, I mean, he may not have a lot of political experience, but it's like, yeah, okay, if Galactus or, you know, his DC equivalent is going to show up at the White House, Lex is not a bad guy to have him greet that person because he's not going to feel uncomfortable. He's not going to immediately call someone else. He's going to say, okay, you know, wait a second. We've got a, a long legacy of this going back to you know, the forties and beyond, like we've dealt with these things before. What did we learn from those experiences? So yeah, that, that's actually a really good point. You know, dealing with Atlantis later on dealing with the alien worlds during our worlds at war, like he's not out of his, uh, he's not out of his depth. And actually that, that's really interesting to see that office being elevated to that point of saying like, no, I can speak to you on your level. I, I don't have to call him. I'm, I'm as smart and as capable as you are. And I mean, I think until we get to, the public enemies arc of Superman, Batman, which will be the subject of a future episode. Uh, I think our worlds at war is kind of the greatest payoff to Lex being president, like seeing him in that role and how he interacts with everyone. And, you know, we can get into that uh, momentarily. Um, but, uh, but yeah, as far as interacting with, you know, again, we mentioned Aquaman, there's uh, a great sequence in that Lex 2000 special where Batman tries to take back the kryptonite ring yeah. You know, from Lex. I mean, that was a great moment. And then there's uh, Loeb did a, a Christmas issue of Superman. That was an artist jam issue uh, where you had, you know, a, a bunch of artists and uh, people I had completely forgotten about. Like Joe Mad did, <laughs> did a few yeah, pages. Yeah. Uh, Mike, Liefeld was in there, too. Yeah, Liefeld. Um, Mike, the late, great uh, Mike Waringo, shortly before he took on uh, the art chores on Adventures of Superman, he did a couple pages there. It's a great issue. And sort of the structure of it is, you know, Superman going around giving gifts to the Justice League members. Not always the best gifts. He gives like rubber bands to, to Plastic Man, <laughs> stuff like that. But but hand in hand with that, you know, they're, you know, sharing their take on, you know, on Lex being president. And you get you know, sort of a range of reactions, I suppose. You know, we talked about Aquaman. Uh, Wally was especially funny to me because he says to Clark, you know, Uncle Barry, you know, always taught me to respect, uh, you know, the the democratic process, you know, and I do. But if you want to go get Lex, like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I thought, uh, you know, I, I thought that was nice. So that was that was an especially cool issue, I thought, just to kind of, you know, get those uh, those wider perspectives from others, you know, not so close to Clark. You know, I thought that was a cool issue. You know, one of one of the things that it's important to remember too is the the time period that President Lex was coming out of. Um, you know, this was the era where we had already had the authority at Wildstorm. In fact, I think by the time this comic came out, DC might have already bought Wildstorm. You know, this comic was sitting on the stands next to comics uh, that featured superheroes that were aggressively political. I mean, the Authority famously deals with the presidents of the United States of, of other countries in a very aggressive and super fashion. So it, it's not as if this wasn't in the air, so to speak. Um, and yeah, that scene with Wally is great because it's like, at the end of the day, I know he's evil, you know, he's evil and you're Superman. If you think it's the right thing to do, it's probably the right thing to do. You know, let's just do it. Uh, he's not, he, he's going to do something bad eventually anyway. Um, but the, the DC heroes, justice league, especially have always stood above politics. It's like, we have to protect you from evil gods and alien invasions and stuff you can't protect yourself from, but they really never involve themselves in affairs unless they're asked to. And to your point earlier, it's come back to bite them because now they have to play nice with Lex because up until this point, they've over-respected the office. And again, they their MO is to wait until something bad happens. So it's kind of like funny to see them so frustrated at that. 
Yeah, and this is, uh, I guess, somewhat related, and I'm jumping way ahead to one of the final issues of Loeb's run, but... Time a, is a flat circle. There you go. But there's that issue, again, towards the very end of, of the Loeb run, and, you know, we could talk about this. The last the last bit of the Loeb run was more of a mixed bag, I felt, than, than the rest of it. Dracula. Uh, yeah, which I'll be perfectly honest, I kind of just I kind of just skimmed through that one. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie that those last few issues were a little a little wonky. Oh, actually, though, on that note, and let me bring this up now so I don't forget. So there's this um, I forget exactly how I came across this, but there was a uh, a thread on the comic book resources forum uh, about a year or so ago. Rich Johnson at Bleeding Cool t- turned this into a story. So it's actually a Bleeding Rich. Cool story if you, if you want to look it up. But basically, uh, Patrick Gerard, the writer, I don't know if you're familiar with him offhand. He actually gets a special thanks in the Uncle Sam issue of the, the Loeb Superman run. So there's that issue where oh. Uncle Sam, the embodiment of the spirit of America, has lost his way and he fights with Superman and then Superman sets him straight. But anyway, he got a special thanks. So it seemed like he was... Working with Loeb to some extent, he was pitching DC at the time. Like he seemed, he seemed to have some sort of you know, uh, you know, inside knowledge into what was going on. And in this thread, he was talking about some of the behind the scenes stuff, and it was interesting. One of the things was that uh, apparently Loeb functioned. You know, he he went beyond the role of writer. He functioned almost as a quasi editor in terms of headhunting and putting together teams, and I think crafting the overall direction. So it seemed like he served uh, you know a much more involved role than just writer. So that was interesting. And, yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me. I mean, considering how much, you know, this is, we're talking about Jeff Loeb. We're talking about the former president of Marvel Television for a decade. I mean, this guy, he's a writer, of course, but I mean, you know, he's more in the Stan Lee vein of like, I know what has to happen to make a bullpen run, for lack of a better term. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, so he was like a producer on, on the Superman books, uh, you know, effectively. And then the other two things that jumped out at me, one, and I think I had had a sense of this uh, originally reading it somewhere, but apparently, you know, the Emperor Joker storyline, uh, which we, that was sort of where we left off uh, at the end of the last episode, but uh, that was not, you know, that was just a Superman storyline uh, over, you know, over a summer. Like it wasn't a line-wide DC event, but apparently it, it sold very well. It did event book numbers. So much so that DC was basically gave the Superman team, you know, the, the keys to the kingdom. And that's why our worlds at war went from what was originally going to be our Superman at war and a much smaller event, more in line mm. with Emperor Joker to this line wide DC event that crossed over into, you know, uh, Supergirl and uh, and Young Justice and Superboy and a bunch of other titles. And you had all these expensive specials <laughs> that, you know, you were you were mentioning. Uh, sure. So I think the story, you know, that story got way bigger than it was originally intended to be, which was interesting. And then the last piece that Gerard mentions uh, in this thread was that uh, Loeb ultimately left because he was getting pushback from the powers that be at DC over certain uh, story directions in particular. And and again, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here again, but uh, in one of Loeb's final issues, Lex discovers that Clark is Superman. And that's not a plot point that really goes all that far, really. Uh, I mean, after Loeb leaves Superman, he launches Superman Batman. The first arc is Public Enemies, and by the end of that, Lex is out of the White House. So that was so it seemed like that was a storyline in particular that was really intended to go further. And so Loeb ultimately walked um, and only agreed to do Superman Batman if he basically could do whatever he wanted. That was the gist of this thread, um, which I thought was interesting. And again, not... Uh, not especially relevant to the point that I was going to bring up, but I wanted to mention it because I didn't want to forget. And so if anyone's like super curious, 
Uh, again, if you go on Bleeding Cool and you search for uh, Patrick Gerard, I think the article will come up and you can give it a read. It's, it's again, some interesting insight into what was going on behind the scenes uh, of the Superman editorial offices and DC generally at the time. Anyway, what I was going to say was, in one of his final issues, there's there's a uh, there's an issue with Mohammed X, a, a black superhero in Harlem, yep, yep. who really takes Superman to task for being out of touch with the black community. And it it's interesting. And again, you talk about stories that are, you know, um, you know, kind of take on new meaning in terms of what we're experiencing in the world today. And it doesn't necessarily offer much resolution. But, you know, Clark goes to Martian Manhunter and says, why don't we have more black members in the Justice League? You know, so interesting questions that were raised. And, and again, much like with President Lex, it's, it's especially interesting to read it now in light of, you know, everything that's going on. So that, that issue definitely uh, stood out to me in a way that it didn't the first time. Well, yeah, I had forgotten about that issue altogether only because it was never followed up on. It was a very good conversation, but it was never followed up on. But I had a similar feeling where one of the most interesting um, parts of the story early on was John Henry Irons. I, I've always loved Steele as a character, and I loved watching him be uh, Clark's partner. You know, not his sidekick, not his replacement, nothing, but his partner, his like his tech friend, the good Luthor. And then on top of all this, he has this know-it-all young niece who isn't impressed by her uncle, but is nonetheless incredibly capable on her own. And I thought all that stuff was so interesting. And, you know, John Henry Irons has been one of those characters that showed up in, in pretty much a gimmick and has, has become a character in his own right. So, yeah, watching the two of them early on, was great because it's like I love when these superheroes hang out and they have friends and John Henry has just as much stake in Metropolis as everything else so I thought it was a great pairing I thought it was like you guys have a very good relationship no one is replacing one another you're going off you're doing your own things and you help each other uh, you know Steel eventually is elevated to the Justice League on the Morrison run and he's one of the best characters during that so yeah definitely a, a great reread with everything going on yeah and speaking of John Henry I know I was little down on the Man of Steel title, but the, what I really did like about that title was the use of Steel. I think making him, yeah, I mean, beyond just a sp- supporting cast member, but actually Superman's partner uh, was great. And there's a great moment where, you know, Clark finally reveals his secret identity to John Henry. And of course, John Henry already knew because of course he knows. Uh, but, you know, that was that was such a great moment. And uh, yeah, I think they definitely use Steel uh, well. And he ends up, of course, playing a pivotal role in, in our worlds at war. And uh, while I'm on the subject of Man of Steel, um, I know I had said there were there were some things that I really did like about the title. And in particular, there was an issue. It was the Christmas issue, I think, right after uh, Lex gets elected. Uh, the it's a Wonderful Life-esque um, moment where uh, Clark sees what the world will turn into if he uh, loses hope and gives up being Superman. Um, and I thought that was cool. Not really It's a Wonderful Life, really. I mean, it's a little a little bit of a twist. That's one of my favorite movies. So. But uh, it's you know not, not as if Clark were never born, but if he sort of gives up now, like what, what becomes of the world. Uh, so I thought that was cool. That was definitely one of my favorite issues of, uh, of The Man of Steel. Yeah. Um, I did like that. I like stories that kind of have to remind Superman of how big a deal he is. Cause I think a lot of times he thinks that he's being humble cause that's the way he was raised. And, um, you know, even going back to the, the issue with uh, it's Muhammad X, right? That's yeah, the character's yeah. name. Yeah. I always want to say, um, Josiah X because that is a character from Marvel from the black Panther story. So I was very important. I was like, I, I don't want to seem like I'm confusing those two characters. Um, where he, 
you know, um, Clark talks about who who looks up to him. You know, Natasha very much looks up to the other character. And then there's a scene with Cordy Whitmore, the once and future star girl, who very much admires him. And not that Clark is caught off guard, but I kind of like it when people have to remind him, like, no, you're a huge deal. You know, you're, you're not just a guy. You're not just a guy who's doing something well. You know, you serve as an example to everyone who both has powers and who does not have powers. Um, and I, I, I like that issue that you're talking about in particular because he doesn't realize how much of an influence he has just by just by being above it all. You know, again, I mean, you have to think of one of the reasons that Lex doesn't just immediately turn around for, you know, doing the super science equivalent of stealing the silverware is that, he, he knows he's going to get caught. Like if he's a very good president, history will remember him that way. But if he's bad, like Superman is going to take him down. Like he always loses. I mean, that's the other thing too. Um, one thing I wanted to mention while we're talking about this, it wasn't included in what uh, you had said we were going to read, but I did find a very interesting piece of information. So when this comic was coming out, um, I guess someone was pitching a Shazam book to Jeff Smith, the guy who did Bone, and it would eventually come out as, uh, it's either Shazam and the Monster Society of Evil or Billy Batson and the Monster Society of Evil. Uh, and it's a great book. But in that, for reasons that are never explained, Dr. Savannah is the attorney general. And I actually found an interview with Jeff Smith that basically said, oh, well, someone told me that at the time, uh, Lex Luthor was president. So I just thought, well, he'd probably appoint his old friend, Dr. Savannah, as attorney general. <laughs> and it was this arbitrary thing, because if you know anything about the Captain Marvel mythos, like Dr. Savannah is the original mad scientist. He actually predates Lex Luthor. So I love the idea of him being this incredibly petty attorney general. And it reminded me of a similar story over at Marvel, where years later, the Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, would be appointed head of S.H.I.E.L.D. And he would do the same thing. He'd arbitrarily put villains into roles that they had no business being just because he could appoint them and shenanigans wouldn't sue. But I, I was just reminded of that and wanted to share. Oh, that's so funny. You know, I, that doesn't necessarily ring a bell, but I definitely, I do remember that miniseries and I'm pretty sure I read it, but yeah, that, uh, I don't remember that specifically, but that's great. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. I, I love like sea changes like that. The, the whole idea of president Lex is really good because it's one of those things where, you know, if, if, if Loeb was acting as a producer, you know, he could have told all the other editors, He's winning. There's no shenanigans. You can use Lex Luthor as president. You don't have to be generic about who the president is. You don't have to use one of these real guys. It's Lex. It's this character who's been around since the 40s. Like, have fun. Like, do stories about that. I don't know if that happened. I don't remember what else was going on at the line that time, at that time. But it's one of those things that I really like because it makes the world feel so lived in. Um, in the Lex 2000 special, there's the scene where he goes to visit the grave of his parents, who he's never been that close with. But he, he says, you know, I feel bad abandoning Metropolis. This is the first time she won't have a Luthor looking over her. And that really connected to me because this man loves his city. He may hate Superman. He may uh, hate superheroes in general. He may hate anyone who he thinks he can't control. But he does love Metropolis. And maybe it's because he's the de facto ruler of it. But not being there every day and having to care for the entire nation was was a really cool scene to me because it's like, oh, Lex Luthor does care about something. You know, it's not what you'd expect, but he does care. And that's important because he has empathy. I agree 100 percent. And it's like, yeah, he's more affected by leaving Metropolis than he was sacrificing his daughter to Brainiac 13 in the Y2K storyline. Uh, yeah. Which, of course, you know, that that comes back around in uh, in our worlds at war. I think we've you know, we've we've talked a lot about President Lex and, and naturally so. I mean, even again, even once we move past, you know, h him being elected, I mean, this really 
th- these threads continue uh, through everything else that we're, we're talking about here. Uh, one other little bit that I always thought was great is that he uh, repaints the White House with lead paint. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's like, of course he would do that. <laughs> so, you know, we, we talked about, you know, the, uh, the Schultz Man of Steel title. And, I, you know, I shared my take on uh, The Adventures of Superman. Was there anything from that title that, that stood out to you that you wanted to mention while we're, while we're having this discussion? It's okay if not... <laughs> I mean, again, it wasn't it wasn't bad, but there was a lot going on. There was a lot to follow, and I was kind of like trying to digest the stuff as I read through it. Nothing, nothing stuck with me. It wasn't bad. It wasn't like a bad comic. I definitely um, kind of understand why I didn't get it at the time. There weren't a lot of names that I knew going into it, but you know, I, I I think it's I think it's a problem for creators like that when you're going alongside, you know. Jeff Loeb and Ed McGinnis, they're just, they're two big names. I mean, they would go on to do amazing things and uh, not that everyone else can't be amazing, but you kind of have to find a very unique voice. If you're going to get heard, your book might be selling because everyone wants to tie in to the big storyline that's going on in the quote unquote main book. But at the same time, you almost risk getting drowned out just because everyone's excited about what's going on uh, further on down the street, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. And it's like, you know, whether it's DeMatteis or Joe Casey and, you know, Mark Schultz, it's like, you know, these guys are, and I said this in the last episode too, but it's like, these guys are always writing parts two and three of storylines. Like Loeb is kicking everything off. Kelly's bringing it home, but you know, they got to, you know, they got to carry the baton and that's no small thing. Uh, but yeah, in terms of, like you said, finding their own, I mean, I think certainly with, with Schultz and, and Man of Steel, I mean, I, he definitely found his own voice. Like that book was, you know, very, you know, was, was very distinct. Um, again, Adventures went through a few different writers. There was, the, you know, so DiMatteis, he did this whole thing with the, the battle for the soul of Metropolis and he used Lord yes, Satanus. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Uh, Satanus. Yeah, Satanus. That's we'll go with that. And there was a, one interesting bit that I liked was um, he took a number of characters with split personalities like Rose and Thorn and Kitty Faulkner and, and Rampage and split them. And I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know that it really had much of a payoff, but I thought it was a, it was a cool idea. I, you know, J.M. is such an interesting writer, and I'm only using his first two initials because I do not know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, He's such an interesting writer because, like Joe Casey, his bibliography, his resume is long. These guys have written everything, and I have read a lot of J.M. stuff, uh, most famously the Fearful Symmetry, Craven's Last Hunt storyline, and Spider-Man. And he has themes that he likes. You mentioned before that it was kind of weird to see uh, a heavily supernatural book in, in Superman going along with the other ones, but that's kind of his thing. Um, he wrote the Hal Jordan Spectre ongoing book, yeah. which was the least science fiction thing featuring a Green Lantern character I've ever read. Not bad, but again, you have to kind of be into that, like, you know, what is man? What is the duality of man? And do you get anywhere by reconciling these two? Um, I don't have a lot to say about his arc, but for anyone who did really enjoy it, there is one issue of the Spectre run where Hal Jordan confronts Harvey Dent Two-Face. And he, he has basically the definitive take on the character. I don't wanna I don't wanna give it away, but if you enjoyed the idea of dualities and split personalities kind of having to come to terms with each other, seek out that issue. Uh, it's it's JM on the Spectre run from a few years later. Very, very good. And I think it's, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Um, I, I have a vague memory of that issue that you're talking about. So yeah, people should check that out. And, you know, I just want to say, because I do think this is important, 
with Adventures or with Man of Steel, it's not even that I necessarily have a critique of them. It's not like, oh, you know, uh, the you know pacing was slow or the characterization was off. It's not even that. It's just like the the flavors that those books had just weren't what I was looking for in a Superman book. But there might be others who were like, no, that was great. I will say I feel because I was thinking about this today, you, you know, when this era of the book started, I mean, it was very much billed as like a revamp where we're freshening things up, you know, we're going in a new direction, you know, things had really gotten bogged down in the 90s with the Superman books. And this was an opportunity to, you know, really, uh, you know, achieve something new. And I feel like with Adventures and Man of Steel, if you gave those to me and you told me that they came out in 97 or 98, I'd probably say, okay, if you gave me a Loeb McGinnis or a Joe Kelly issue and you said this was from the 90s, I would say, no, I don't think so. Like those definitely felt fresher and of a different time. Like they were doing something different. Uh, and again, that's not even necessarily a knock, but I think it does account in large part for why I was waiting originally and now with the reread, <laughs> like why I was so much more excited when I was reading the Loeb and Kelly issues. No, I think there's a very good reason for that. I mean, Jeff Loeb's background was in screenwriting. I mean, this was a guy who wasn't, he wasn't a TV writer. He wasn't going in and out every month needing to turn in scripts that they never knew if they'd be trade paperbacks or not. He was a film writer. So he knew, like, I have two hours to get you in here, tell you a good story, and leave you smiling on the way out. So his stories read like that. Uh, I think the best things he ever wrote are the books with Tim Sale. I mean, they're just, they're amazing. Whether it's the uh, Superman for All Seasons or the books he did over at Marvel or the Long Halloween. Um, and it's because he understands this, like, I have to tell you a single story and I have to make sure you remember it. And when it comes to artists, I mean, for lack of a better comparison, he has some of the best directors around. I mean, all of McGinnis's artwork, especially when you get to Batman Superman later on, it's poster worthy. I mean, it's it's image founder splash page, but with Jack Kirby storytelling ability. I mean, McGinnis is is great. I'm such a huge fan of his. Um, but Loeb, I really think, brought that that filmmaking sense into it because it's like I can't just tell you a story in this one issue, and we're going to tell you another story the next issue. It's I have to build on this. I have to build on this. I have to build on this. And at the time, you know, the, I keep harking back to this, but things were transitioning into, into trade paperbacks. And there's a lot of his stories that you could carve into six issues, maybe not President Lex as a whole, um, you know, but certainly the stuff later on would, would, would really lend itself to that. And I think he saw that coming when maybe a lot of other people in the field who had more experience in the field couldn't have seen that coming. They just, they didn't, they weren't trained to think like that. I'm with you. And, you know, I think you see that, you know, again, I mentioned that line of trade paperbacks that they put out collecting, you know, this period. And again, they weren't complete, but I don't think there was, at the time, there was much of a, an expectation that they would be. It was kind of like, it was kind of cool that you were even getting that, you know? So, yeah. but, but you were definitely at that point. I mean, the, the, the period of time we're talking about, 2000, 2001, I mean, that's where you were really seeing a shift. Uh, Marvel, you know, would lead the way uh, in, in a big way. Uh, and it's always funny because I think prior to that, you know, DC was the publisher that was collecting things more regularly. And again, it was never a given and it was, you know, not always, you know, 100% complete, but at least you knew you would get something. Uh, so I think you're right. I mean, I think Loeb kind of saw where where things were going and his stuff does read like that. That's one of, Again, and I don't say this to keep, you know, dumping on the other titles, but that's, I guess, one of the things that makes me sad, like going through this reread. It's like, I wish that I had to read or that I could give someone to read, you know, like just the Loeb stuff and be able to read that in a vacuum. There are some issues where you can do that, 
But again, it was still one of four titles telling a weekly Superman story. And during the crossovers in particular, it's like, you know, you, you really need the other books. Now, I know people yeah. will say, well, you have Superman, Batman, and that's true. And you have four all seasons. But as far as, you know, just, a, you know, a, a modern Superman focused, you know, run, uh, again, I wish that you could kind of kind of package that together on its own. Because, uh, again, those those still are, are my favorite as I'm going through all of these issues. Yeah, I, I was talking to someone the other day about how um, I don't get excited when an announcement's going to be made that a good, well-received movie is going to be remade. But what I'd love is a movie that was like two-thirds good and just dropped the last third. If you could remake that, that would be great. And President Lex is something similar. Like, I love the premise. I think it's great. I think it was executed well. But it's all over the place, and you can't share it with someone. So if if HBO Max needs some content and they want to do an animated movie of this or they want to let Loeb come back and McGinnis come back and just do like a six-issue like summary, something like that, I, I really think that that would be time well spent because I think um, – you have an evolution on both sides that doesn't go away. Like even today, if someone's writing Lex, and at this point they're probably our age, they, they in the back of their head, they think, well, Lex Luthor was president of the United States for at least a year. Like we have to play into that. Like this is a person everyone's going to know, uh, and we have to make that part of whatever quote-unquote evil scheme he's going to do. Um, but yeah, I, I wish they would come back and just, I don't know, re-envision it something, because I, I would love to have that on my bookshelf. Same. And I mean, you know, switching mediums, but I'm, I'm sure that we're going to see a proper live action adaptation of President Lex sooner rather than later. Of course, Smallville in the series finale and their seven year flash forward, we see that Lex has become president. But, you know, Michael Rosenbaum had left the show at that point. He just came back for the final episode. You don't see him running for office. You don't see him in office. And I feel like especially on the television front, and we do have a new Superman and Lois TV series. So, I think there's an opportunity and especially on television where budget is more limited. Like this is very much a storyline that you can do on a TV budget. It doesn't really require, uh, you know, uh, you know, a feature film, uh, budget necessarily. So, and again, I just think there's so much that, uh, that can be mined and especially doing it in an episodic format and really taking your time with it. I really, I think there's a lot of material there. So again, I'm very confident we'll see that sooner rather than later, you know? Yeah. It, it, you know, it gives the character something else to do because, uh, you know, Lex can be a businessman, but how long is that going to last after he tries to kill Superman or blow up the moon or whatever the plot is for that week? Um, but this gives him something else to do because once he is president, then it's, it's this question of, well, how am I going to get what I want? How can I bend the system to my uh, to my will? And who am I going to get to do it? Because going back to his cabinet, it's like, I love... I would read a monthly book that just featured Amanda Waller, who is one of my favorite comic book characters of all time, dealing with President Luthor. Because she knows where all the bodies are buried. She's buried them herself. She's outsmarted Batman. She's been in every movie and every country. She's a great character. And the idea that she is part of Lex's cabinet, that writes itself. I mean, the DC history is, uh, excuse me, the DC universe has a long history of like active superheroes. And just the idea that she's combing through this and he's like, what do you got? What can I use? I mean, that writes itself. So to your point, yeah, I, I think a season of television at, at least would be great. Yeah. I, I, again, I think it's only a matter of time. Uh, so kind of moving forward a bit, I know we touched on Return to Krypton earlier and it's only a four part storyline. Uh, Loeb and McGinnis do uh, an issue the month before that sets everything up where, 
you know, Clark receives this message from a different Jor-El than he's ever seen before, telling him that everything he's known about Krypton up until now uh, was, was a lie, effectively, and that this more, you know, kind of colder, more calculated version of Krypton that we got with Burns' Man of Steel uh, wasn't the true uh, representation of Krypton, and, and it's rather this Silver Age version, which, again, as a kid, you know, I, I guess I probably just chalked it up to it was, a, you know, just a, a different Krypton, or maybe I had read something in, like, comic shop news or, or you know, something like that that kind of clued me in as to what what we were really getting here. But like you said, it was an effort to kind of fuse or reconcile uh, the pre-crisis and the burn versions of Krypton. And uh, so at the same time that Clark receives this message, Professor Hamilton and John Henry are getting messages from Krypton via the Phantom Zone. And this allows Superman and Lois to visit uh, this version of, of Krypton. And, you know, what I especially liked about it, I mean, just getting the opportunity to see Clark and his birth father interact and see the mutual, you know, respect. I loved that they gave Lara something to do. You know, they establish her as top of her class at, at, in cosmonaut school. And, and you know, when, when Superman is stranded out in space after moving Krypton to save it from destruction, she's the one who hops into the rocket and goes to get him. And I think that's great because it's like in all of these tellings of the origin, and we've had many of them, she very rarely has much more to do than get the baby. That's like yeah. her role in this. So I love that she had more more agency, more to do. Yeah, the the thing I liked most about Return to Krypton on a reread was the fact that after it was over, like you said, it was only four parts, all the characters from Superman on down kept saying, what was that? Because did we change history? <laughs> was that an alternate reality? What the hell was that? And unless I missed something, there's never... A re- there's never um, a reason given as to like why this was allowed to happen. So I was kind of thinking on it a little bit, and I I kind of have like I guess you call it headcanon. I want to throw at you. I think the only way to really explain what happened in that story um, is to say that he he went through the Phantom Zone because again, to, to put my, my, my geek hat back on the, the Phantom Zone is not an alternate reality. You know, the Phantom Zone exists underneath and in between all the different realities. It doesn't work according to any law of physics. There's an old uh, issue written by Howard the Duck creator, Steve Gerber, where he says it's actually just a mental place you exist in. So it, it's very weird. And a lot of writers have used it um, to further a lot of different plots. But I, I kind of think to myself like, okay, they went through the Phantom Zone and they kind of went back to like pre-crisis Krypton. Like that's really the only way to justify it. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but there actually was a story in the golden, late golden, early Silver Age called Return to Krypton that this was a reference to where Superman goes back to Krypton. And it's a very similar story. And actually, I don't remember if he gets married to a Kryptonian actress or they, they, um, they are just dating. But it was written by Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel. So this whole story has a, has a great deal of pedigree. And if you haven't read the original story, I definitely recommend it. I don't think it's on the app. But um, I do like the idea that our modern, very practical, uh, you know, Superman, the burn Superman, the I'm charged by solar energy, science can kind of explain what I can do, has to go back to a world where none of that mattered, uh, where it was just kind of like over-the-top, wonderful stuff. He has a dog. Why does he have a dog? Don't know, but he's got a dog, and it's awesome. Um, and that, that's kind of my headcanon of explaining it. Like when he comes back, it's like, okay, where did he really go? Well, he went to a reality that doesn't exist anymore, but, uh, does it matter? No, cause it was an enjoyable story. You know? Yeah, no, I did. I dig your take on it. 
And yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they sort of all wonder what was that. And like I said, I mean, he, he, with the help of some, uh, you know, some ion engines or something like that, he is actually able to move Krypton and save it from destruction. So then that begs the question, well, <laughs> Krypton never dies. Is there a Superman? Does he ever go to Earth? And of course, the timeline is not altered. So it's always kind of hard to, for them to, to reconcile that. I don't want to burst your bubble, but there actually was a return to Krypton 2 that I saw in the solicits of the last issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like literally right after uh, the end of our assigned reading. And I did not reread it uh, in advance of this. Uh, I, I did a little quick, very, very quick uh, recon. I think that ultimately the version of Krypton that they went to, I think, and listeners, you might know this better than me. So if I have the details wrong, please forgive me. But I think it was ultimately like some kind of construct of the B-13 technology or something like that. Like, I think it wasn't real. I think that was sort of like the ultimate um, outcome of this, but you know, and, and you know, in this podcast, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the various tellings of the origin. I will say that, as much as you know, I really enjoyed the um, the the characterization uh, that Byrne brought to brought to Clark, and really emphasizing Clark over Superman. Obviously, that's the version I grew up with, uh, and and that I most identify with. But as far as his version of Krypton and and the whole idea of the birthing matrix, and that it wasn't the whole bit that Clark was actually born on Earth because he was born with it. Don't love that so much. Um, I, you know, oh, I, okay. Yeah, I mean, I much prefer, you know, the baby on Krypton whose parents lovingly and with with fear and hope put him inside the rocket. I think that's just so much more resonant. I think there's a lot more that you can mine from that. So I, I definitely didn't mind uh, this. Um, again, even though it, it ultimately did not undermine the burn version, I guess, um, but that there was sort of another, another version that was presented. I, I, I did like that. I don't disagree with you. Again, I, I think the, um, the Silver Age Krypton is really good for what it is, which is a, it's a place full of people who are full of hope and are full of wonder. Unfortunately, they couldn't get out of their own way in time to save things. Um, but one of the things I really, really like about the John Byrne version of Krypton is Clark isn't just a child and the last child. He's the only child. Like, uh, if I'm remembering the story correctly, his parents even having a kid is a huge deal because most of the people don't bother, they don't need to. Um, so their their decision to have a child, especially when they know the world's going to end, it is in of itself this beautiful act of rebellion. And it, it's something that's that's so important in that version because in that version, everyone is cold. There's no astronauts. There's no art. There's no nothing. There's just this stayed place that doesn't die because it couldn't get out of its own way. It dies because it can't be bothered to do anything else. Um, and then that's why I really like that he's born on Earth. Uh, not that he can't be born on Krypton, but A, he doesn't realize the, the sacrifice his parents made. So there's, a, there's, an er there's an element of tragedy to that. But also, I just I kind of like the fact that he's just He's born in America. I mean, he, it's still very much an immigrant story. His parents were from somewhere else. He came here from that, and he gets his memories later on. But I like when the the, the Matrix opens up, and it's almost you can picture like, you know, maybe 
John Burns Kryptonians didn't even look human. Maybe they were completely unhumanoid. Whatever was in that birthing matrix, you know, it popped open. Two human beings were standing there, and it pulled like a Doctor Who. It just made the kid look like that. I, I don't know. I'm going crazy here, but I kind of I like the imagination that was on display. And I think, especially the time period we're talking about, the late '80s, like cyberpunk was big, dystopian fiction was very big, Blade Runner was very big. Like I think that really spoke to the mood, you know. And Superman coming out of those very dark origins from a single spark of hope to become the greatest hero of the world and eventually the universe. I don't know. I like it. It really gives a really good arc for the character. Again, I, I can, I can respect that, but I need, I need Jor-El placing the infant in the rocket. Sure. I gotta have it. <laughs> I gotta have it. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things that we get out of this storyline is crypto, but not for too long. It like, <laughs> And I'm not a huge, you know, I'm not a huge, uh, uh, like my wife is a huge animal lover and dogs in particular. I, I, I like them certainly, but I'm not like, oh my God, a dog. But uh, when he when he has to bring crypto to the fortress because fortress, crypto almost killed Mongol, it broke my heart. I felt that was an overreaction. I'm not going to lie. I think, I think Clark could have found, for Mr. There's Always Another Way, I felt like he could have come up with something else instead of, instead of just dumping crypto at the fortress to be cared for by the robot. Yeah, I, it was rough, too, because I was reading it, and it's like, you know, all right, Jeff, you want him to have his dog back. I support that. But clearly no one else did, because it's like, <laughs> you know, you, you don't see, the, you don't see the, the noble, bright version of Krypton again. It's not really referenced for the rest of his run. You don't really have a lot of storylines with Crypto. It's like, again, it's, it's like you have nostalgia for a very particular version of Superman and you're trying to bring it back. And, and I respect that. I mean, he was trying to do it in a very novel way. It's not like he was just forcing these things in there. Um, but I feel like that's kind of the nature of this ongoing storytelling too. I mean, clearly if you wrote Superman today, you would have nostalgia for the era we're talking about. And maybe you would try to bring some of those elements back. Um, and I, I think I would be guilty of that too. They'd probably be like the terrible nineties era. Like I'd have Superman have long hair for some reason for three issues, but you know, to, to look at someone's nostalgia and see whether or not it's received by the generation after them. It's really interesting. And yeah, crypto, it's like, I just don't feel like anyone knew what to do with him. I guess. I mean, you know, uh, there was an issue of man of steel, I think like right before, I mean, we're t and that's the funny thing about this. It's a very, very short period of time between crypto, uh, coming back with them from their trip to Krypton and then crypto getting stuck in the fortress. But uh, Schultz did an issue of Man of Steel where um, Crypto's tearing up the apartment, of course, and uh, Superman takes him out to try to tire him out. And then, uh, I forget the specifics of the issue, but he needs Crypto's help to uh, to um, try. Oh, I think it's the criminals who break out of uh, of prison and he needs uh, of Crypto. Of strikers, to, right? Yeah, yeah. and then uh, he, he gives Crypto the scent and Crypto's able to track them down, something like that. So, but I think that was it. And then you have the issue with Mongol and they really pull at your heartstrings because they have <laughs> in lieu of Loeb's typical narration in that episode, in that episode, in that I do that all the time in that issue, <laughs> you have, um, you have a, like a little comic strip. It says written by Clark Kent and illustrated by Kyle Rayner uh, of crypto. Crypto was a good boy. And this is whole thing with like with this cartoon crypto. Uh, I, yeah, that I don't know. That kind of bugged me a little bit more than than I thought it would have. But and again, to your point, it's just like, you know, if you didn't really want to do anything with crypto, you know, why, <laughs> why bring why? it back? I don't know. No. And so we're getting. Real, yeah, no, go ahead. I no, I was just going to say to that point, because again, it's like, I mean, 
if you have an arc planned out or, or something, then that's great. But if you're just going to throw him in there, it's kind of mean because you're throwing him in a world where it's like, well, he's, he's going to chew up an apartment and he's going to bite the jugular of a supervillain. Like that's, that's the stories that are being told now for good or bad. And the, the other big example for this was uh, the character of Supergirl who like shows up periodically throughout this run. And she's wearing the white shirt from the cartoon and all those other things. Um, and like, no one knows what to do with her. Like at one scene, someone's like, who are you? And it's like, Oh, I'm Supergirl. And I had to remind myself that at the time that character had an incredibly convoluted origin because no one would just let them bring back Kara Zor-El. And then like a year after uh, Loeb leaves and started Batman and Superman, he did just that. And just kind of like you're saying, just plopped her back in. And that one took because obviously she has her own show and she's world famous and she's had many, many books since then. So I feel like it's just, you know, you have to be able to read the room and see how you're see, see what type of situation you're going to drop the character into, you know? Very much so. Um, so we've been going for almost an hour and a half and uh, we got to talk about our worlds at war, uh, which again, you know, very much the, uh, you know, what most of this run was building toward. And, you know, in, in the very, very beginning, those earliest lobe issues, you know, it starts with Mongol Jr., you know, coming to Earth to warn Superman of the coming threat of Imperiax. And they have this battle with who they think is Imperiax, but turns out to only be one of the probes. And then, you know, we get little hints of it here and there as we're moving forward, but this is what it all builds to. Uh, Imperiax coming to our galaxy to to wipe everything out. Not a ton of nuance, you know, really in the, in the characterization or, uh, you know, or... Um, plans of of Imperiax but you know I can and it's funny because like generally speaking my wife hears this all the time when we especially with respect to the superhero movies I'm generally not the biggest fan of villains whose entire plan is just like destroying everything I I think when we have we, we have instances to get a little more interesting get a little more specific more personal that's what I like a lot even I'll shift to Marvel for a second but like even Thanos and Endgame I appreciated that because it wasn't wipe out everything it was wipe out half and he had a specific reason and it's like okay i can get on board with that but when it's just like total destruction uh that's usually where it loses me but i think and again i was pleasantly surprised rereading this that i enjoyed the storyline as much as i did and i think that the fact that they framed it as a war story made it work for me and i think it it just kind of put it on another level than like your typical summer crossover where someone wants to destroy everything. I felt like it just gave it a little bit of a, of a little different spin. And, uh, I responded to that. I, I agree. Um, one thing I will say is that I do not like the character of Imperiax. I, he's, I don't even know if you can call him a character. He's really a cipher. I mean, I, I mean, there's like nothing really there. It's so bad. And it makes me so annoyed because it's, it's like, I love the design. Like, again, McGinnis and his Eastern influences. I mean, Imperiax is this little, like, weird shogun, like, hair bun. He's got the ostentatious armor, but also he's got a decaying, like, human face underneath. Like, clearly, if he had been given a little bit more time, like, this guy would have had a really interesting backstory. But then when you have to scale him up so that he can fight the entire DC universe, and this makes more sense now that you said it wasn't originally planned that way, then it's like, oh, there's an unlimited number of him, and he's got unlimited resources and for some reason you have to fight this guy on the individuals i just kept comparing him to the coming of galactus where galactus arrives on earth he does not acknowledge human beings he doesn't even acknowledge the fantastic four until they have a way to beat him and they only do that because another god has decided to help them and here it kind of annoyed me because imperiax lands in topeka for some 
MacGuffin reason. And then he's fighting Superman. And it's cool to have Superman fight a character who can actually, you know, take a punch from him. But then it's like, he's telling him how much he doesn't mean to him. And it's like, what is going, what is the point of this story? But, but to your point, and again, I'm not picking on it. I don't like the villain, but to your point, you're right. It's a good war story. It's really great to see uh, like Lex has to assemble the suicide squad. Young justice are like the younger soldiers, the ones who aren't ready. Like it, it was really good to see like almost, almost like a World War II story. It just happened to be in the science fiction setting. And you had the, the alien allies who they weren't sure about. And I love that setting. I thought that was really good. Um, again, I just, I wish there had been a little something more to your point that we could care about what the villain wanted as opposed to just like, you know, Galactus times two. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's a very fair, uh, you know, critique of the story. And I, I think a lot of fans would probably agree with you. I mean, you know, I don't know how often this storyline really, as as big as it was at the time, I don't know how often the storyline really gets talked about or referenced. It's never been adapted, and I think it would actually be a, a cool uh, animated movie. And I think there's a way to do it where uh, actually could work really well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it again to sort of like have that investment. It, it is a little tough, but I, I will also reveal that I I did not read all of the tie-ins. I only read, oh. yeah, I made, I, it was a very conscious choice, uh, also driven by the fact that uh, I felt like I was a kid in school, like up against the deadline here, because I was like, it was like last <laughs> night, and I was like, oh my God, I have so much to get through. <laughs> I read an awful lot. Like at, yesterday started, and I was only, I wasn't even at Return to Krypton. So I had, oh, a, I had a long way okay. to go. But yeah. even even putting that aside, I made the choice because I said, I really, I really just want to focus on the Superman books. And I've read, I read all the tie-ins when they first came out, but I said, I really just want to focus on, on the main books, anything that Loeb wrote. So like Loeb wrote the JLA, our world's at war special. I read that. Um, obviously I read the, the world's finest special that kind of wrapped everything up. So I made a couple of exceptions, but mostly I just read the core books. And I, I think that helped a lot actually. Uh, I'm glad that I did it that way because that really gave you the really the spine of the story um, and anything that kind of happens in the other tie-ins, they they give you the context. Like, you know, I didn't read the JSA special where they destroy the Imperiac ship, but like they mentioned one of the other issues and it's like, okay, they destroyed the ship. Actually, <laughs> they mention it in a bunch of the other issues and there's a reason for that. So back in the day when this thing came out, like I said, I, I didn't read many of the tie-ins um, just because they're kind of like a, a, a cash grab for the most part. But I did read the JSA one, uh, and it's written by it's written by Jeff Johns. And this was back in the day when he, I wouldn't say he was just starting out. I mean, he'd already done Stars and Stripe, and I'm pretty sure he was working on JSA. But if you haven't read this thing, please do. It holds up. It's amazing. And, and this is like early vintage Jeff Johns. Uh, this this was probably my single favorite issue of any of the ones that had anything to do with our world at war, um, because it takes the Justice Society and it it crosses them over with these war comics that you're talking about and your listeners, viewers may not be aware, but back in the day, there's this concept of the all-star squadron, which is basically every golden age character, every golden age intellectual property that DC owned got together to fight, I don't know, the Nazis or per Degaton or some golden age foe, but it was assembled by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> so this great idea of like the justice society and the freedom fighters and all the other, you know, intellectual properties DC has absorbed over the years, they all get together, they form a superhero army and they go fight the bad guy. And Jeff Johns does that here. And it's amazing because it might be Lex Luthor, but at the same time, 
this is the Justice Society. This is the ones who they fought Nazis. They fought all the bad guys. They inspired everyone to come later. So seeing all these characters assemble and just being like, what do we have to do? We have to disable a planet the size of Jupiter and save a, another planet full of Superman-type people in the Daxamites. And they're like, yeah, you got to do that. And it's like, yeah, all right, not a problem. And they, they like go into space and, you know, it's John. So he's able to work in subplots and dialogue and, and, and um, Sandman's sidekick, Sand, who's the current chairman, setting him up against Hawkman and everything else. I read every word of that. And I actually remembered scenes of reading it originally back in the day. And the whole crossover was worth it just to have that one book. That's got to be one of the best things Jeff John's ever written. And the, the very last page is great because Luther says, you know, we, we need you back here. We're, everyone's falling back. We're not doing too well. Listen, how many casualties did you have? Uh, we got to know, you know, who, who we can send where. And, you know, Sam, who's a relatively new character, regardless of the fact that he's based off a, a Golden Age sidekick, says casualties, we're the Justice Society, zero. And then there's this great scene of you see dozens of characters. And don't get me wrong, it's incredibly cheesy, but as a lifelong comic book fan, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, like, I'm keeping this issue if I ever have to sell the rest of my collection. So sorry to go on a tangent, but that was, that was a damn good comic. No, and, and, you know, again, I read all of them as they were coming out, and I definitely have fond memories of that. And I, I think Jeff, Jeff Johns also wrote the Flash, uh, Our World at War special as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, I mean, I, and again, I think there was a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, and yeah, so for people who haven't read any of it, I mean, you know, I recommend checking it all out. Uh, but yeah, for purposes of this reread, I, I really do think it helped just focusing on, on the Superman issues. Because I guess, and I do think that Man of Steel soundtrack helped. I'm not going to lie. It was very epic. And especially in those big <laughs> battle scenes, I, like it really pulled me in. Uh, it was a nice little accompaniment to, to the reading. But uh, I think, I guess what I enjoyed most about Our Worlds at War, I think it, and, and whether, I don't know what it was, whether the soundtrack or reading just the Superman issues, but I felt like I really got to feel the toll that everything was taking on Superman, you know, uh, from again, the, you know, the, the Imperiax probe landing in Topeka, Kansas and causing so much destruction, including the destruction and presumed death. Thankfully, that's not the case, but presumed death of the Kents and Loeb, uh, pulls in one of my favorite moments from Superman, the movie. And, uh, you know, you have, you have Clark at the demolished farm and he's just like all this power. I have all this power and I couldn't save them right out of Superman, the movie when he's at uh, Jonathan's grave, you know, so from that to the, the, again, presumed death of Aquaman and the vanishing of, of Atlantis, uh, Wonder Woman's, uh, mother, you know, dies as well. Like there's so much death and destruction. Uh, Sam Lane, you know, Lois's father, there's something, you really see this guy being put through the ringer, uh, having to take orders from Lex. And there's that great moment at the end of that action issue where, uh, where Sam Lane dies. And, you know, Superman was so lost in battle that he didn't hear, it didn't register, but he didn't come to Lois's side when she was calling for him, uh, when she knew her dad was in trouble. And there's actually this a kind of amazing moment between Lois and Lex where, uh, you know, where Lex comforts her and actually says that I'm sure if Superman could have been here, he would have. And I actually wanted to ask you about that. I mean, again, this is jumping ahead a bit, but uh, at the end of the low run, sort of what, what Lois realizes and, you know, what we, the reader, know uh, early on in our worlds at war because Lex is having conversations with his now grown daughter, Lena, who's an agent of Brainiac 13, and she's letting him know. We don't get the specifics, but we know that he's being clued in into some of the things, at least, that are going to happen. And Lois later realizes that the reason Lex called her uh, back down to Earth from the space station she was on was because he knew 
her father was about to die. Like that's what Lois realizes towards the end of the low run that Luther knew. Uh, so that might color this a little differently, but looking at that moment where Lex consoles Lois, I mean, was it genuine or was it really just yet another one of his plays? So this has gone into more heavily in the Joe Kelly run where he basically says like Lex loves Lois as much as Clark does. And based on the current continuity, Lex has loved her longer than Clark has because Lex was born and raised in Metropolis. Clark was not. Clark didn't arrive there until after college or whatever sojourn he went on to. Um, I like that because like I was saying before, you know, my, my Lex and Clark were friends when Clark was in high school. That's just the way I think of them, which actually is based on an old silver age story. That's, that's how Lex originally lost his his hair, but that was wiped out post continuity. It didn't make any sense for them to be friends. Um, But I do like the fact that they both know Lois because that gives them an incredibly personal connection. Um, You know, I, I always think it's funny that while like, you know, a lot of superheroes, uh, Tony Stark, for example, they they play around, they date a lot, they do a lot of stuff, they get a lot of things out of their system. Clark meets Lois Lane, and he's like, "Oh no, that's that's the woman. I'm I I need to win her over, and I need to be married to her for the rest of my life." And I always bought it. I, I always thought they were very good for each other. Uh, but I do like the idea that every time Lex either sees them together or stopped by him, he thinks in the back of his head, "It's like." Now, one day she's going to know that I was the right one. I was I was the choice she missed out on. Um, and again, to reference the Red Sun shirt that I'm wearing, you know, in that story, they are married. They're miserable. But the <laughs> idea is that if Clark had never come into the picture, eventually she would have settled for him because he is the smartest guy in the world. He's probably only one of two people who can keep up with her. Um, by the way, I'm I don't know if I've ever said this to you. I'm a huge like just Lois Lane fan. Uh, like I think she's one of the best characters that. DC has and, and kind of in the back of my head I just kind of make Superman like her sidekick because like she she chases every story she doesn't care about the danger and she knows this guy is going to save her because he loves her so anyway that's a sidetrack but to answer your question yeah I, I think it's it's genuine I think that Lex genuinely cares about her that he would love to be with her and that you know yeah it would piss off Superman but at the same time he he really does care he has concern for her that's how it read to me as well, honestly. Like it, it read as genuine, and I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's what was intended because there was really in, in that particular moment there was no reason for Lex not to say, "Yeah, Superman should have been here," other than that he genuinely was trying to comfort her, and it does lead to this moment where where Superman effectively like sort of surrenders himself over to Lex, and he's like, "Let me know what you need me to do," and you know, going back to Smallville. As you know, listeners will come to find. We're going to go back to Smallville a lot <laughs> in this podcast. But yeah, I love, I love the, and even again in Smallville, we saw them as young men, right? And they were friends, and we saw that friendship deteriorate. But even when they're adults, I like, I like the a version of them where they're more, you know, reluctant allies than outright enemies. I just think it's more interesting. And so where they really have to work together in a case like this, oh, I thought it was great. That was, I think that was one of the things that really, you know, stood out to me about um, our worlds at war. You know, otherwise, again, it is a lot of, it's a, you know, it's a big slugfest. It's, you know, heroes falling. It's a lot of destruction. It's a lot of action. Uh, we do get that very unlikely uh, alien alliance with uh, Maxima and Massacre and Darkseid, <laughs> uh, you know, which, which was you know, especially interesting. I had interesting. a question for you. Um, do we ever find out why Darkseid 
cares about this. Like, I, I know I'm a huge Jack Kirby fan. So I've got kind of like a very particular version of Dark Side in my head. But I was almost, I had remembered he had shown up because I read these issues when they were coming out. But back then I didn't know that much about the character. I just knew he was like a big bad. But reading these, I was like, wait, why do you care about this? And then at the end of the book, all he seems to get out of it is is the corpse of Doomsday, which again will be followed up in the later Batman versus Superman storyline. Even but, before that. Oh, actually, he gets the um, he gets the corp. Wait, because uh, Doomsday reappears in Superman one seventy five very shortly after our worlds at war. Yeah, except that was a different. One? I, I think, I and then remember. at the end of that issue, Lex gives the body over to Darkseid. You're right. I had it backwards. I apologize. That's yep, you're quite all right. right. We've read a lot of Superman issues, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's understandable if stuff sort of uh, you know blends together there. But why was Darkseid? Sure. I mean, yeah, I think. That was probably a little bit of a stretch, but I think it comes down to, I think it was probably done to show you how serious of a threat Imperiax was. It's like even Darkseid's concerned about this guy. So, hey, you better care about him. Sure, sure. (laughs) But also, I mean, I guess like for Darkseid, Darkseid doesn't want total destruction. Like Imperiax basically wants a new big bang. He wants to start over. So like that would not be in Darkseid's interest. And so, again, I I still think it's probably a little bit of a stretch, but, you know, it it was interesting. And again, like war makes for very unlikely allies. And I guess that was ultimately what they were what they were going for. But, you know, that was an interesting angle. I've mentioned now many times about, you know, Loeb's use of narrators throughout his his Superman issues and he deviates from that here. And I don't know, uh, maybe he didn't feel like, <laughs> like doing it for these issues, but he oh, uses, man. he uses speeches, right? So the Gettysburg excerpts from the Gettysburg address and JFK's inauguration and, uh, MacArthur and, oh, I forget the other one. Oh, FDR after Pearl Harbor. FDR. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, again, I'm going to reveal, I might not have read those as I was rereading these issues. And here's the thing. At the, as a kid at the time, I actually think I liked it. Uh, and I've always, I guess more when I was in elementary school and high school, I was a little bit more of a, of a history buff. And, and I kind of dug that. Reading it now, though, uh, I was disappointed that we didn't get his typical point of view narration because I really think that would have enriched things. And I just kind of felt like if he didn't want to do that for whatever reason, I think it would have been better to just not use anything and just let the art speak a little bit more. And that's how I read it. And it worked, man. Yeah, Lowe always works with great artists. Uh, and even when he doesn't work with uh, his regular collaborators, he still writes stories for them. Like, I think he must be great if you're an artist, because I'm sure most of his conversations are, well, what do you want to draw? And I, I really do think that's how you get some of the best work from your collaborators. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you don't need the Gettysburg. The Gettysburg Address is a great speech, don't get me wrong, but you don't need it here. I'm sure I didn't read it last time. I absolutely didn't read it this time. Um, but yeah, to your point, you could look at the art and it's like, don't even cover this stuff up, man. This stuff's gorgeous. This is this is some widescreen. Like, this is not intrigue. Like, this is pure spectacle. Like, these ca- like Dark Side, Superman, Lex Luthor, Manchester Black, these are like... These are Dragon Ball level powerhouses. They're all on the same side. They're all fighting a villain who's ten out of ten. You know, let the let the art speak for itself. Let's let's go big. You know, if we're already going light on plot, then go light on plot. Let the art speak for itself, and let's see if we can come up with something that lasts. Yeah, and honestly, reading it that way worked better. So uh, yeah, I do wish that he had just uh, again let the art speak for itself. 
Uh, yeah, I don't feel like the speech has really added all that much, but I don't know. I mean, maybe people read it and, and they feel otherwise. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, yeah, again, as far as the um, sort of like the unlikely bedfellows, I mean, Superman has to fight alongside Doomsday uh, in in uh, the one of the adventures issues uh, drawn by Waringo. This is gorgeous. Um, yeah. But yeah, so um, so you do get a lot of stuff like that. Like I said, I felt like the the stories definitely showed the toll that that everything was taking. And I mean, story-wise, we get to uh, essentially the, the quote-unquote twist, I suppose, where, uh, you know, Imperiax is built up as the ultimate adversary, but then they're actually able to gain the upper hand and shatter the Imperiax, you know, containment unit, releasing all that energy, and in swoops in Brainiac 13 with Warworld and uh, takes the energy for himself. And then we kind of move into the, you know, the, the end game of this, which... I've, I've gone on record. I keep saying it on these shows like Brainiac, not my favorite villain, I guess better than Imperiax though. So that aspect wasn't like, I wasn't blown away by, oh, Brainiac's back. And, you know, we definitely had hints that Brainiac had a role to play in this. I guess I did like that it did bring everything full circle, right? Since we started this run of books with the Y2K storyline and the B13 virus to sort of bring him back now, uh, you know, I think worked. I mean, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I have to be honest with you. It's one of those things where I feel like a good crossover can be divorced from most of the stuff that surrounds it and you can give it to someone. Now, obviously, this is not a great example of that because it wasn't designed to be a crossover. It's not Marvel Civil War or Infinity Gauntlet or, um, I don't know, New Frontier. I'm trying to think of a DC one. But this one was particularly bad because, or not bad, but particularly bad for the reason that I can't give it to someone. Um, because the big climax brings in characters and concepts that weren't in the rest of the story. I mean, yeah, everyone was talking about the B-13 virus and the, you know, the, the citizens of Metropolis were grappling with living in the city of tomorrow and all that fun stuff. But when he shows up with War World, with Lena, with everything else, yeah, if you'd been reading all along, that's a great big reveal. But if you just showed up because you were like, oh, man, why is soup? Why are Superman and Darkseid fighting together? Who could possibly bring these guys together? And Lex is commanding a superhero army, and he's not the bad guy. And wow, like, and then Brainiac shows up, and you're like, wait, what? What is going on here? You, you, you'd be confused. And then the end, end where they go back to the Big Bang Theory, it's like, I like, I like high concepts as much as the next guy, but it's like, what is going on? Like, did you guys write yourselves into a corner and you didn't know how to deal with this? Like, the whole thing to me was just like. Well, why don't you just do that every time? Like, I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> like, let's just let's just throw every let's throw the anti monitor back to the Big Bang. Let's let's throw Mageddon back to the Big Bang. Like, it's if it's so easy to do, I didn't realize that was an option. You know? Well, <laughs> I, I was so shocked. I was like, wait, what? That's how you're gonna beat him? Like, no one, no one has a has a. He's he, first of all, he's destroyed many galaxies in the DC universe, presumably there's no one out there who can show up and be like, you know, I did read once that someone once pushed him off or, or something. I, I don't know. It just felt, it felt backed into. I, you know, I'm, it's, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Cause I think that, I mean, I think you see in the story, like they don't, they don't accomplish that uh, transportation so easily, right? Like it takes the temporal energy of the B-13 uh, renovated LexCorp tower and the spatial displacement energy of a boom tube fused <laughs> into this armor that Steel is wearing. Like, that's the only way they're able to do it. So it's like, I, I can kind of buy that. And I actually feel like this 
feels like a little Morrison-esque to me. So I would have thought you would have liked it more. Can't I mean, I feel like you could see him doing something like that. Oh, that's interesting. No, a- actually, I, I would agree with that. The, 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 the part of the story I really liked and did feel very Morrison-esque is when Imperiax goes back to the Big Bang and it turns out that he actually gets what he wants. Yeah. And he has the, the line that I actually liked very much, which is, oh, it turns out the flaw I was chasing was me. That's incredibly Morrisonian. That feels like a line out of Doom Patrol. So that that I did like a lot. And again, if the story had focused on Imperiax, as you said, why he was a threat, why we cared about what he wanted, what he wanted for that matter, then I think that would have been really good because then him having that revelation not only serves the story, but it serves to make an interesting character. I mean, again, we haven't seen this character since then. That was 20 years ago, other than... I think he was the villain on the Legion of Superheroes show. Um, you know, this is not an evergreen character, unfortunately. I think that's one of the reasons why. Um, but I think he could have been. And I just think having like Brainiac and all that nonsense show up where it's like, because no one cares about War World. I'm sorry to say this. Like, you know, we, we're, Thanos was stolen from the New Gods. You stole him back as Mongol. Like, I get it. He's fun for Superman to punch. That Black Mercy story was a lot of fun, but it's like, Stop it. No one cares about War World. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I can't really disagree, uh, you know, about War World. And it's funny with Imperiax. I love that moment, too, in the end. And it's like, you finally no. give him an interesting moment. This is last one. I no. mean, better late than never, I guess. And uh, But in that final issue, I mean, Superman really, uh, you know, he goes off. Like, he flies into the sun. He absorbs all this radiation. Like, he's, you know, really on a tear. And, you know, he's the one who has this idea, right? Um, cause the whole thing is like this energy that was contained in Imperiax. Like it can't be of course, you know, destroyed. So it's like, what can you do with it? Uh, so I thought for, uh, for a way to wrap this up, I, it worked well enough for me. I mean, I get what you're saying. Um, but it worked well enough for me. And then you get this moment where Superman is able to bring back to Lex, uh, his, his daughter, who was once again, a baby, uh, baby Lena. Uh, and it is a great moment between the two of them where, where, you know, Clark says to Lex, it's like, you know, we're small men in a very large universe. You know, you have a second chance, like don't screw it up this time. Um, so I thought that was a nice moment. And, you know, with our worlds at war, I mean, again, for listeners out there, it's like, you know, your mileage on this may, will vary, but I, you know, I encourage people to check it out. If, I mean, I'm assuming most people listening to this have read it, but if they haven't, I think it's worth a read. I definitely feel that all the aftermath stuff was, was a lot, uh, certainly from an emotional standpoint, was a lot richer. The episode, God damn it, I keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> the issue of Superman immediately after where Clark is rebuilding the farm and Ma and Pa are still missing and uh, the our narrator in this issue, we're, we're uh, seeing excerpts from uh, Ma Kent's uh, journal over the years. I, 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 I teared up a little bit, you know? And uh, at the end, we get Clark's reunion with, with uh, Martha and uh, in the next issue, we'll get the, the reunion with, uh, with, with Jonathan. But um, yeah, I thought there was a lot in the aftermath. Clark starts seeing a, a psychiatrist. You know, there's a lot yeah. of interesting stuff there in the immediate aftermath of Our Worlds at War. Yeah, I, I, was, saving, I was saving the psych, psychiatrist bit because to me, that was the best part of this entire run. And I didn't remember it at all. I, I don't know if I just didn't think it was a big deal or whatever. But um, watching watching Superman in full costume, in full cape, be in that room and be talking to someone and trying to work through these issues was amazing. Again, that, to me, if you had led with that, if you had led, like, let me tell you about this terrible war we just fought while he's sitting on the couch, that would have been great for me because you see Superman 
in an uncomfortable position. He's not used A, to talking about himself, and B, talking about loss. You know, Superman saves people, he helps people, that's what he does. I loved that. I thought that was astounding. I want that character to come back. I want her to get her own book. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't recommend it enough. And to have uh, John Jones be the intermediary was even better because I love the Martian Manhunter and Loeb uses him to great effect in this book, both as a fellow outsider, granted someone who was an adult when they emigrated to Earth, um, but also someone who goes out of his way to be incredibly empathetic because as a telepath, he knows what everyone's going through. You know, Clark can only assume that everyone wants to be as noble as he does. Jean can tell you whether or not that's the case. He's a little bit more practical. So having having Clark see a psychiatrist was amazing. And it was my favorite scene in the entire film. I, I agree. I think it was a great touch. And I, I'm with you. I think had they... Maybe instead of using the uh, the historical speeches, they had used excerpts of conversations, <laughs> you know. But I think that could have actually been a really interesting uh, framing device. And I think it's, again, it's something I can't think of any other stories where, you know, we've seen Superman uh, in a situation, you know, like that. Um, and I think it, it it's, again, a really interesting dynamic. And yeah, I wish we had seen more. I'm not surprised that you had forgotten about it. I, I To be honest, I, I think I did too, because... You know, again, our world's at war was such a big event and really marked, again, I think we can kind of draw a line there um, with the Superman titles at the time between, you know, what came before and what came after. And, you know, Loeb really only had a few issues left in his run and then he would go off and do Superman Batman, which was real big and splashy. So it's like, and, and I, as I said before, like those post our world's at war pre Superman Batman issues like, again, kind of a mixed bag. There is some great stuff like like that. And even, you know, it's funny, I was not really looking forward to the Toy Man issue because I didn't, I guess I didn't really have a strong memory of it or not a great memory of it. But uh, what I had completely forgotten about is uh, besides introducing a new Toy Man and there's a battle between Toy Man and Metallo, but it's basically an updated version of the classic Metropolis mailbag stories where Superman answers letters uh, from people on Christmas and now it's the, the email bag and uh, so in between trying to mediate this fight <laughs> between Toy Man and Metallo, like he's off repairing a bell at a church in Spain and reuniting a father and daughter and like doing all this other stuff. So I actually, I, I quite dug that issue more than I thought. So uh, again, like there's some good stuff. Then there's the Dracula issue, you know, <laughs> so, like it's uh, again, very much a mixed bag in those, in those issues. You know, the, the, the Dracula issue is one of those things because it's so weird. It's self-contained. It has nothing to do with anything. He's just straight up fighting Count Dracula, a character I have to imagine that many, many, many other DC characters have fought before. But it's also one of the only issues with art by, by Ian Churchill, who was like a famous like image X-Men guy. Like uh, His women are beautiful. His men are very sculpted. Uh, it's a different type of art style. It's It's... Uh, years away from Ed McGuinness. So you get to that story and it's like everyone's beautiful and they're slinking around this Eastern European castle. And I was just like, what is going, like, how did, like, did Ian come to you and say, I already drew a story about Superman fighting Count Dracula. Can you please work it into your art? Like it was one of those things where it's just like, I wonder if Loeb was going through a bucket list. Because again, on, on paper, it's not a bad idea. Like I love the scene where I think the character is actually called Count Romanoff. Uh, is able to penetrate Clark's skin and then immediately bursts into flames because <laughs> Clark's blood is is mostly solar energy, which, you know, whatever, is a little ridiculous, but it's a Superman comic. It's not the weirdest thing I've ever read in one. So, again, on paper, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I, 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 I could see, like, two archetypes of Western 
fiction like Superman and Dracula, like really having a knockdown drag out fight. But yeah, that issue, that was a weird one. Not even bad. Just kind of like, wow, this, this really happened. I own this. Yeah, that one was, that was pretty out there. And you know, it's that issue. And I think the Muhammad X issue, but I have to double check that, but definitely the Dracula one, Jeff Johns is uh, credited with the plot for those two issues. Oh, and Jeff John and Jeff Loeb did the script. So, you know, again, that feels out there for Jeff Johns too. It's like they, (laughs) that the Dracula one in particular, like really feels like an outlier. Um, the uncle Sam issue was interesting. I mean, that's, I think the first direct reference to nine 11 in one of the books where, you know, Superman's talking about the destruction. Uh, and there's actually a great shot. Uh, so once Ma and Pa are back and reunited, they take over the Smallville general store and there's a great shot of, uh, like main street in Metropolis that McGinnis draws. And there's actually a little, a little thing there uh, after TS for Tim sale. Cause I guess he took his inspiration from sales, uh, rendition of, of Smallville in, in for all seasons. Uh, so there was some cool stuff. I know, and I don't mean to rush, but we've been going almost two hours and I think we'll, uh, we'll give ourselves and listeners a rest. But, uh, in the, in the therapy sessions, one of the things that uh, Superman talks about is his encounters. And this primarily went on in, in Joe Kelly's action run, which, you know, we'll pick up in a future episode, but there's a new Zod, uh, in the midst of all of this, like with everything else going on, (laughs) there's a new version of Zod who actually breaks Superman's jaw and this is like right before our world's at war. And he's like haunted by this encounter. Yeah. I mean, not to get too much into it, but the, the general Zod of the country whose name I cannot pronounce to save my life. Oh yeah. Is P- one P- of the P- most confusing P- yeah. character. Yeah. I, I do not know. Clearly it's supposed to be a combination of apocalypse and then a country that ends in the name Stan, but I've been trying to say it out loud and I can't figure out how to do it. So, but that character is very interesting because again, it was one of these things where it's like, I want Superman to fight General Zod. And 20 years ago, that was a very easy thing to accomplish because General Zod was just a supervillain you could bring back. But now you can't because no one else made it off Krypton and Krypton was very cold and all these other things. So the the lengths, the, the lengths that Joe Kelly has to go through, the hoops he has to jump through to get to Zod, and even for the entire thing that you and I read, he never takes his mask off. He never mentions Krypton. It's just so weird. You know, here we are sitting... Um, you know, sitting here 20 years later where we have, you know, General Zod has been in two movies since then and he's been on TV and he's been on everything else. It's like, this is a character people know. It's like, I don't understand why you were bending over backwards to bring in a character who's like a very successful intellectual property. It's just strange. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned that with Supergirl too, and it, it actually is kind of funny when you think about it. It's like now we're, you know, we're five seasons in, you know, heading into the sixth and final season of the Supergirl TV show, but it's like, you know, that's who we have. And same thing with Zod and all these, these depictions. So I know it is kind of funny that they had to, you know, really beat around the bush, uh, you know, with, with these characters for such a long period of time. But so that was going on in the midst of all of this too. Um, as we wind down here, I want to talk about the final two part story of the Loeb run. Cause it really, I think it ends things on a strong note. It certainly leads right into Superman, Batman, public enemies. And, uh, it also, also brings everything full circle uh, by bringing back the deal that Lois made with Lex at the very beginning of this run. Lex sold the Daily Planet back to Perry White for a dollar in exchange for Lois agreeing to kill one story uh, of his choosing at any point in time. And so uh, what Lois realizes, and then she has corroborated by Hope of Hope and Mercy fame, who uh, <laughs> uh, tur- you know turns on Lex briefly, I guess. Um, is that Lex knew about the destruction of Topeka. He knew about a lot of these losses and events in our worlds at war because he had information from the future. 
But of course, this is a story that Lex wants Lois to kill. So uh, as as a loophole, <laughs> uh, she passes the story off to Clark. The Daily Planet uh, publishes it. Lex denies it. And then we do get this really interesting uh, moment where, I mean, it's crazy to think that the characters didn't realize this was a setup, but okay. <laughs> but Lex invites the Justice League, you know, to the White House to, to, to have Martian Manhunter read his mind. And it's like, as you're reading this, it's like, what did you think was going to happen? Obviously, he has some safeguard in place. <laughs> but according to Martian Manhunter, Lex, you know, not only he didn't have, you know, prior knowledge, but he does confirm to, I mean, this is what you were referencing before. He confirms to Superman that Lex really does love Lois. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of that, that two-parter? Yeah, I, I, I was very much let down by that because... Mm. Not that it was a bad story, but because everything suddenly turned where it's like, oh, okay, he did have uh, an agenda and he did have a plan. He did everything else. But I, I just kept thinking to myself, like, what's the end game here? You know, like, like, was it a, was it a World War II analogy where it's like, you know, some people believe that FDR had prior knowledge of harbor and then that led to everything else or i might be stealing that from dark knight returns but my point is like you know you you always have to ask yourself what what does he want what does the character want what does he stand to gain and when i was reading that it was like i get that you're leaving and i get that you want to leave a period at the end of the sentence of the story you've been telling but at the same time it's like i think this has outgrown you like I, I think if if there's going to be a story told with Lex as the president, you almost got to let it run its course. You almost got to let it, you know, go on. Because yeah, to your point, I was like, wait, the Martian Manhunter series, the most powerful telepath in the DC universe. Like, clearly there is a plan here. Like, why did you even agree to this? Like, it was one of those things where it was like, you know, there's a there's a writing rule where it's like you can't suddenly have your characters act dumb to serve the plot. And again, I'm not criticizing the way he was writing, but it was one of those things where I was like come on, like, this is going to be your last issue. Like, this is not a resolution. Like, it just kind of annoyed me. Now, granted, I, I know, having the, the uh, having read the other issues, that most of these plot lines are going to continue in Batman versus Superman. So if you know that, then it's like, oh, okay, they're, you know, this isn't the end of the story. This is the end of the second act of the story. So I don't know. I just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth because if this was going to be your last issue of the Superman run, it's just like, I don't know. Like I wanted more of a mission statement about the character. And I just, I don't know if I'm being fair to it, but to get to that point and it was like, Oh, and that's it. And I'm like, Oh, that that's it. That's all we're getting out of this. Like I just, I wanted more, I guess. I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree. I mean, again, overall, I like the two parter. I especially liked, I liked that we finally got a payoff to Lois's deal. She finally came cl clean to Clark uh, you know, of course he was understanding, uh, you know, he said it was one of the most, uh, you know, uh, selfish and self-serving and compromising things, but also one of the most courageous things you've ever done. Uh, so I was glad that we finally got a payoff to that because that had been dangling literally, literally for the entire run. And, you know, after the Justice League encounter on the White House lawn, you know, Perry has no choice but to fire Clark. And so you have Clark, this run started with the Daily Planet coming back and them all coming to the Daily Planet. So I kind of like the symmetry of it ending with Clark leaving the Daily Planet. Of course, we get that great little epilogue page where that was all just a ruse. And, uh, you know, Clark's going to be working uh, with Superman and Perry, you know, undercover to try to continue to take down Lex. So I like I liked that little bit at the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. And I guess I also, going back to the FDR example, right? The argument is, you know, if 
you know, if there was prior knowledge of Pearl Harbor, it was so that it would, you know, pull, right, America into the war. I guess with Lex, it's like, so, and I mean, he did know what was going to happen, but I guess, why did he let it happen? Or what, I don't know, like, what the agenda was. was it like, <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, yeah it's kind of hard, because it's like, it's not like, here, I guess here's the thing. It's not like the, the metahumans, like, they wouldn't serve him unless they saw the destruction in Topeka, and then they would follow his orders, right? That, I mean, that at least gives a little bit more of a motivation, but I don't know that that's necessarily what was at play here. I mean, I, I, again, I, I'm not picking on anyone, but we did discuss the fact that Imperiax doesn't have as much characterization as some of the other major villains. Um, and I think that's part of the problem here because he was clearly coming to Earth and there are hundreds of stories where an alien invader crosses the threshold of the moon and suddenly the big seven are there to stop him. Uh, that's like a trope. So you, you kind of have to assume that if Lex is like, oh, okay, a, a man in a giant suit of armor is on his way to Earth, he's going to be stopped by these assembled hordes. In fact, I may not have to get involved. Um, the, the other reason that that story confused me is if you don't know about Batman versus Superman, there's no reason you should at this point. I, I don't even know if it was mentioned. You mentioned before how Lex had learned Clark's secret identity, and maybe he got some pushback. What I was expecting the exchange on the White House lawn to be was not off-panel a, a psychic we never see erase the knowledge from Lex's mind, because again, why would you do that? The exchange I was expecting was for... John to basically be like, hey, he knows you're Clark. How far do you want to push this? And then set up the psychic response where the two most powerful men in the, men in the world, President Luthor and Superman, are looking at each other saying, fine, expose me. I, your secret's already embedded in messages I'm going to send to people you haven't even met yet. Your Clark Kent identity will be gone by the time you fly home. Like that, what, what I thought the exchange would be, because that would be a very... Lex thing. Like, I'm doing what I wanted to be as president. I'm not hurting anyone else, but I'm going to find a way to make sure that you have a bad day, Superman, because you've made sure that I've had a bad day. But we don't get that. And this major plot point, this major beautiful thing that was built up was just ignored. And we get this thing about some unseen psychic helping Lex, and then it ends, and then Perry's helping him, and then that's all, folks. And then you close and you move on. It was like, what, what happened? <laughs> It, it is a especially puzzling given that, you know, Lex found out the secret two issues ago, you know, and there was a scientist who was examining, uh, you know, uh, the satellite records and found that the spaceship landed in Smallville. That's how Lex finds out. And yeah, so it was odd. Yeah, I too was expecting that to be referenced in that telepathic exchange. It's like, that seems like that scene was built to discuss that information. <laughs> so, yeah. so I don't know. And I mean, you know, again, well, the, the final two parter, the secret, like overall worked well enough for me. Um, I, I do get what you're saying. And I think this might be a product of, uh, you know, what, what I was talking about before, you know, that, uh, that, uh, Patrick Gerard was sharing about some of the tension oh, yeah, and, right, right. you know, the pushback that Loeb was getting. And I think it might've been the sort of thing where he was like, I'm done. Cause it's also too, it's like, it's a two part story to wrap up years worth of, of storylines. Like it, it happens pretty quickly. So I kind of get the sense, maybe this was not originally going to be, you know, the, I don't know, you could call it a period because we do have, you know, Superman, Batman, but the dot, dot, dot. I think there might have been maybe a little more that was, <laughs> you know, originally intended. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I, so we've been talking for over two hours. I think we'll, you know, we'll uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> wrap this up now. But um, any any final parting thoughts on uh, on this run, either the portion that we discussed or, or just generally? 
Uh, yeah, one parting thought that I have is a back to the President Lex thing. Um, one of the exchanges I really, really liked, I, I forget which of the books it was in, but the uh, first time Superman arrives at the White House after Lex uh, has moved in, uh, they're having kind of a tense exchange, and Lex whispers, because he knows that Superman can hear him, and he says, uh, oh, I don't, want, I don't want you to be embarrassed next time you come here, so let's rehearse it together. Uh, yes, Mr. President. And it's just this beautiful thing, because Superman can't react. Lex isn't doing anything wrong, but he's poking him in the eye. He's reminding him that he is now inseparable from this institution, you know, the, the executive branch, the federal government, the, the iconography of the presidency that Superman has always placed himself on level footing with. And now that is Lex. You know, Lex has done many schemes in the past, but his perfect scheme is being put into a position of power where Clark has to respect him. And I just love the fact that he is enjoying that. You know, Clark, uh, Lex is written to be brilliant. Lex can be as smart as the story needs. So he's probably a very good president. I mean, in, in Red Sun, where he also becomes president, he balances the budget, he cures world hunger, he does all this stuff, but he does it uh, in his spare time because he doesn't care about the electorate. That's not why he's there. He's there to annoy Superman. And I think that exchange really captures why Lex wanted to be president because he knew it would bother Clark. <laughs> no, well said. Uh, listen, this has been a blast. I appreciate I mean, you brought so much amazing insight to this. So I thank you so much. I thank you for taking the time, you know, not just for this episode, but also for the reread, because I know, you know, it's, it was not a light reading assignment necessarily. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, taking all of the time to both read and participate in this. Uh, this was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I always looking for, excuse me, I always look forward to having these conversations. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, like I said, you and I will do an episode uh, focused on Joe Kelly down the line. So, you know, if you were listening to this and you were like, hey, there's a lot of stuff from the action run that they didn't necessarily get to, we'll we'll get to that down the line. Uh, v. Ken Marion is going to be back, uh, you know, in the future and we're going to talk about the Jeff Loeb Superman Batman run. So that'll be a lot of fun and that's still to come. Nice. In uh, two weeks, uh, I already recorded this episode. I'm really excited for people to hear it. Uh, I have on one of our mutual friends, Mike, uh, Rich Roney, and we talk Rich. about uh, Superman 2000. That was the rejected pitch by Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, uh, Mark Wade, and Tom Pyre. Uh, basically what we would have gotten instead of the run that we've just been discussing. Uh, so Rich and I, we spent a good hour plus uh, talking all about that pitch. And it's, it's a really great episode. I, I hope people enjoy it. Um, but really, so thank you, Mike. Thank you to everyone uh, for listening. I really do appreciate it. I know these have been kind of long episodes these past two, but uh, you know, hopefully you've, you've enjoyed them. It's certainly been a blast for me uh, to revisit this run of comics. Um, you know, we've talked about a lot, and obviously you know, there are some aspects that held up better than others for me. But overall, I am happy to say, and I can say that this run remains... Uh, my favorite out of all of the time that I've been a Superman reader. And so, you know, if there is anyone who's been listening to these episodes who hasn't read uh, what we're talking about, you know, I certainly do, uh, do recommend it. Um, all right. So thank you all. We will be back in two weeks. And remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Schiegel. Music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to listen to My Comic Shop History, available on most major podcast platforms. Sign up for exclusive additional content, including the Digging for Kryptonite companion podcast at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon.